I'm Darren Dockerman, and you're listening to The Optical. Welcome to the first episode of The Optical. I've been wanting to do this podcast for a long time because, God damn it, I love movies. And I uh, also love Cinefix magazine. Uh, it's a magazine about visual effects and all the movie magic that got me so excited about uh, getting into film when I was a kid. So we're going to go back and look at the original issues uh, from 1980 of Cinefix magazine and take a look at the, the movies they talked about and, and the people and the techniques and all of that. Um, we're not just going to talk about effects. We'll certainly cover other areas of the films, but just kind of using that as a framework to go back and, and talk about this stuff. So in this first episode, we're looking at the first issue of Cinefix from 1980, which covers Star Trek The Motion Picture and Alien. And we're going to talk about those movies, and we're also going to have on Darren Docterman, who was the VFX supervisor on Star Trek The Motion Picture Director's Edition. And we'll also chat about what the heck is an optical anyway. There are so many people that I need to thank um, for making this podcast possible, and one of them I need to mention right now is Cinefix Magazine themselves, who helped sponsor this podcast by getting us access to these old, out-of-print Cinefix magazines, and we're, we're very grateful to them for that. Stay tuned for later in the podcast for your opportunity to win a one-year print subscription to Cinefix Magazine. But first, to talk about Star Trek The Motion Picture... I have on good friend and noted Star Trek enthusiast, Ron Algarwatt. I think, I think by this point I might qualify as an aficionado. <laughs> he is the host of several podcasts, including The Post-Atomic Horror, in which he and his co-host Matt Robotham are going through every episode of every Star Trek series ever and uh, turning this experience into a series of incredibly entertaining comedic podcasts and... Uh, some episode guides as well. You're not biased in that at all, in that you're a, uh, a frequent guest and also a collaborator in the uh, iPhone app that we made relating to the show. No, no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm certainly don't have you on because I am in awe of your podcasting prowess and uh, wanted a, a little crutch to get me started here. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> complimenting my prowess. <laughs> Wasn't he the guy inside the Darth Vader suit? Yeah, uh, yes, David David Prowess. David Prowess, exactly. Yes, I'm sure we'll be talking about him in the next episode when we talk about The Empire Strikes Back. Oh, I want to come back for that one. <laughs> <laughs> you made me talk about the motion picture. <laughs> so, um, why, why don't we just start at the at the front of the film here? There's uh, we get into maybe a little bit more action than the rest of the movie has. Uh, mm -hmm. We have a really cool shot of uh, the model, the Klingon ship models uh, swinging around it in a wide arc and seeing them come up on uh, the V'ger cloud. And and this would be the first appearance of the reimagined Klingons. Uh, in the original series, they were just dudes in grease paint and uh, Fu Manchu mustaches. And this <laughs> is the first time you got the nice forehead ridgy uh, uh, Klingons that we've come to know and love. Yeah, is that supposed to be like their their spines just come up all the way up around the top of their heads and... I'm not sure. Foreheads. I've never, I've, I've never actually seen a Klingon skeleton, but that would be a that would be a cool thing to see because I know, like when Worf has his shirt off, which isn't often because they have to do this makeup, he's got sort of a a spine protruding from his back, as I recall. Mm -hmm. I, apparently, I I don't know about the the makeup side of things, but apparently, um, 
uh, Doug Trumbull, when he took over the effects, there was originally another um, effects company uh, contracted to do uh, the the stuff for Star Trek the Motion Picture, and uh, it was Robert Abel and Associates, and they had uh, come up with a lot of interesting CGI stuff, like really early CGI stuff, and had to say some, CGI in 1979. That's impressive. Yeah, yeah. Um, they had done some commercials with CGI, and uh, they uh, eventually worked on Tron, which mm-hmm. I know you haven't seen. <laughs> long running inside joke between the two of us but no i have not seen it <laughs> but they i i think they kind of they they had been used to working on commercials and maybe maybe bit off a little bit more than they could chew uh in the time allowed for the effects so eventually it got passed on to doug trumbull and his group and uh sub contracted them was uh john dixtra who had run ilm for the first star wars movie and his group apogee uh, and they worked together on the effects to kind of right down to the wire to get this done on time i think i remember reading that it was like only a a couple of days before the premiere they were still splicing effects shots into the movie well i think i think overall uh, just speaking of effects and set design and all that stuff this was their first real chance to flesh out that world that we mostly had to imagine from you know cardboard sets and and you know just uh cheesy paintings and stuff like that this was the first time they had a little money and they could actually show off what klingons look like or what the enterprise you know really looks like and that kind of thing and and right i don't know if he approached it that way because i got the impression he wasn't a big trek fan but from the perspective of trek fans at the time i imagine this must have just completely blown them away yeah i think that's kind of why we're getting into san francisco and getting back to the ship and we get you know this really long by today's standards, sequence of them, you know, something's wrong with the transporters. So they have to get over there by a little shuttle pod instead. So Scotty and Kirk are in this little shuttle pod, and it must be, what, six or seven minutes of them flying around? The it's quite long. We watched, we watched the director's cut, and I do think that that is longer. Like they do a full 360 around the ship, and then they come back around again. Yeah. I mean, but it's, it's interesting because I like, I first saw that only on, you know, on TV, on VHS. Uh, mm-hmm. tapes or whatever and quality is horrible and you're like okay it's the ship let's get on with it but then i saw it at the afi um mm-hmm. you know an actual film print in a theater and you look at it and it's like holy crap there's all this detail that i couldn't see on home video before and it's actually kind of nice to just you know sit here and and stare at all the detail you could imagine you know these star trek fans that uh the you know the show had been off the air for a decade they're like mm-hmm. ah wow well, yeah let's sit here and yeah, there's take a look at the ship. enterprise <laughs> exactly well and you had even mentioned you and i just now screened the dvd version you had mm-hmm. mentioned that it it's a bit muddled as compared to the blu-ray as far as a lot of those uh optical effects like in the v'ger cloud and stuff like that yeah exactly so it's it's interesting to see that even even with the blu-ray i can kind of look at on you know the projection screen that i have here at home and and actually appreciate the the detail and the quality that went into it and it's it's actually pretty cool to just sit there and and stare at you know some of this uh almost psychedelic stuff flying over the surface of V'ger and now what i what i really liked as a as a star trek fan and as sort of a sci-fi fan in general was 
particular, I mean, if we're going to talk about V'ger and, and the way it looked and all that, it looked more alien than I can think of most other Star Trek things ever looking. Like, it's not, mm-hmm. you're not just looking at a human being with bumps on his head. This is a weird thing that you've never seen before. And you, you really get that sense. And, and right. sometimes I feel like it's sort of elbowing you in the ribs. Hey, sense of wonder. Huh? Huh? <laughs> but for the most part, it's actually there. It's actually like, wow, the Enterprise has never encountered anything like this before. What is this? You right. know? And, and that's cool. And there's some shots as they're flying, uh, you know, through over the V'ger surface where you, you have to see this tiny little Enterprise in the corner oh, of the yeah. frame. And it's it's amazing to get that sense of scale that like, holy crap, this thing is I, huge. I'm always a sucker for that when you're in yeah. space and you see that the spaceship is just this tiny little blip in the vastness of everything, you know? Yeah. Well, let's, let's backtrack a little bit. We're, we we get to San Francisco and we've got some really cool matte shots with a uh, little model shuttlecraft flying through and all that. We um we have a we have a joke on the post atomic horror, which is that San Francisco is the only city on Earth because that's <laughs> that's the only place we ever go. Like I think one time in in oh in Into Darkness, the one that just came out this past summer, sure. uh, they they went to London. Yeah, that's that's true. And then right off, we're we're off to the uh, what they call apparently the uh, space office complex, <laughs> uh, where you know Kirk is talking to some folks, conniving to get his uh, command of the Enterprise back, his ship that he loves like a woman. Yes, <laughs> and then they get in the shuttle pod and do the whole thing. It starts off the Enterprise is still being refit. They're kind of like rushing to get things finished so they can launch and get out there and you know, look at this V'ger thing, but it's like in this dry dock area where it's like this intricate lattice work around the enterprise itself with all these little fiber optic lights. And, and apparently they had like underneath there, they had like a big light and like all these tiny little dental mirrors <laughs> reflecting little pools of light under the enterprise that look like spotlights on it. But once you get out into the blackness of space, there's nothing to reflect off the enterprise. So the enterprise should just look black. Sure. So an interesting thing that they came up with on this one was like trying to do more self-illumination to have lights that look like they're actually sourced from lights that were physically on the Enterprise. Right. Um, you know, so the, the Enterprise could still be lit and look interesting even in the blackness of space when it's not near anything else that's casting light on it. That makes sense. You got to you got to have that suspension of disbelief because otherwise we wouldn't see the ship and the ship is the cool thing, you know. We- sure. I mean, there are a ton of other movies that just kind of light it you know as if there's a sun right nearby but um i think that was a a cool you know nod to try and make it a little bit more realistic and you were saying a little bit more maybe like 2001 where it's well that's that's what i hold as sort of the standard of hard sci-fi where it's it's actually they're they're trying to make an attempt to make it real you know make it as as plausible to current science as they can and you know which is I interesting because that was like a decade before and what prompted them to go back into doing the movie seemed to be the success of Star Wars, which is kind of big space opera, action, adventure. Right, roaring engines through the vacuum of space and, and <laughs> right. magic, literal magic and and just exactly the opposite of that. Um, and there was one thing you, you said at this point in the film while we were watching, you said this movie looks so 70s. What did, it, what did you mean by I, I can't tell if it's just the fact that they're all in the pastel uniforms or if it's the film quality. Something about it just feels very... There was that wave of sci-fi movies in the late 60s, early 70s. The Charlton mm-hmm. uh, Heston was in a bunch of them. You know, you got the original Planet of the Apes. You got sure. um, Soylent uh, Green. Green. And there's the third one that I never remember. Is it Omega Man? It might be Omega Man, yeah. Yeah. And then and then you got like uh Silent Running, like you mentioned. You got um damn it. 
the one where the, uh, they're <laughs> they, they're not allowed to get old and uh, uh, Logan's Run. Logan's Run. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, you know what I mean? And I, I would even put Zardoz in this category, <laughs> awful as that movie was. There, there was a wave of, of science fiction uh, pre-Star Wars. But that, that had I've, a very distinct look to it, and I, it, it, something about this had that similar look, and maybe it was uh, maybe it was Trumbull's sort of fingerprint. I don't know. That's interesting because I, I think maybe they all had a little bit more of that kind of uh, serious sci-fi vibe, mm-hmm. uh, like two thousand one did, as opposed to Star Wars that was more action, action, action instead of you know. Well, let's kind of think about this you know interesting concept and kind of play through it, which. There's a lot of thinking and talking in this movie. Yeah. I I am of the belief that those are not mutually exclusive things. I think it's a hard balance <laughs> to hit. But sure. I know I know in this episode you're also covering Alien, and I would argue that that's an interesting sci-fi concept that still keeps moving. Yeah. And uh, then we're introduced to Pierce's Kambata. Which is a fun <laughs> name to say. <laughs> it is. Uh, she plays Ilya, and she's the bald lady in the movie, if you've just seen publicity stills. Um, apparently, there was like a big uh, media event when they cut her hair for the movie. And uh, <laughs> she was actually pretty nervous and maybe a bit upset about uh, and regretting. Well, she was a, <laughs> she she was a supermodel, if I'm not mistaken, right? She wasn't just an actress. She, she did a lot of modeling. I believe she was Miss India. Right. And so, you know, her hair's her livings, man. <laughs> and after she has shaved her head, Gene Roddenberry, you know, with, with all of the care and forethought that he had, gave her a gift of an electric razor. <laughs> uh, oh, the great bird of the galaxy. You are yeah. such a sensitive man. Yeah. For for people who don't know, and I'm, I'm not sure who, who that might be, I think this may be common knowledge, but mm-hmm. uh, the character of Ilya, well, I don't know if you mentioned elsewhere that, that this was originally supposed to be a, a TV series and they ended up chopping up the pilot and, and I think another script and combining them into, to a movie when they, when they right. got to go ahead to do that. But they would sort of redo the character of Ilea and the character of Commander Decker as Counselor Troy and, uh, Will Commander Riker. Riker. Yeah. yeah. Which, which is interesting to see the, the character development here. There's obviously only two hours worth versus what those characters would become in next gen where they're basically start out in the same place and then evolve very differently yeah and it's interesting to see too where they kind of reuse some stuff for Mm -hmm. next generation where it was it was there was originally supposed to be a uh, tv show that was going to be called star trek phase two Mm -hmm. there were some scripts they either had treatment written or they had started writing the scripts for them um, and one of the treatments was eventually written into a story by alan dean foster that became the basis for this script yeah, there's a long and sordid history to this yeah, project. There's um in the the making of a book by Susan Sackett, it goes like half of the book is about like the whole process from 1969 when it went off the air to actually getting this movie into production. And there's mm-hmm. a, a lot of detail there about that. But also the music here. You know, we get uh, different uh, music here from uh, Jerry Goldsmith that eventually becomes used as the Star Trek The Next Generation theme. Yeah, and now in retrospect, it feels weird. Like, wait, why are you playing that music? This isn't Picard. What's going on here? Uh, we finally get uh, Disco Bones. <laughs> Yay. DeForest Kelly comes back on board as as uh, Dr. Dr. McCoy. Mc- uh, yeah, we're, we're in these bell bottoms, this shirt split down to his navel with his, with his uh, chest hair, <laughs> and wearing a medallion. a medallion. Yeah. <laughs> 
and he's just great just hobo beard and oh man just that's I, some great I, stuff i i'm sad that he lost his beard halfway through the movie I want to know, and I know there have been novels and, and, and expanded universe stuff written, but I, I'm i not really satisfied. If that's how he looks as a civilian, what does he get up to? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you call him back to duty. That's This is what he does in his off time. Wow. It's just fascinating to me. He's like the Hugh Hefner of the 23rd century. <laughs> the TV series, mentioning that, I, I just remembered that uh, Douglas Trumbull said that he thought the Enterprise model was too small. Apparently, it was originally uh, spec'd out for the TV series. So it was only seven feet long. Only seven feet long. Only, which, yeah. <laughs> which sounds huge to me. But mm-hmm. he said, you know, on uh, his movie that he directed, Silent Running, the, the ship was like 26 feet long. And then on 2001, the Discovery was like 50-some, 50, 50 54 feet long, I think. You're getting to and, the point where it's not even a model anymore. It's just <laughs> you're building an actual spaceship. <laughs> well, let me ask you. You've seen it both on film, like in a, in a proper theater and on Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. Does it does it look like it should have been more detailed or were you satisfied? I I was pretty satisfied with it, but I think I know I think it was like he wanted to get more, you know, little they call them greebles. <laughs> what is that? Uh like, you know, just like little extra junk glued onto it to make it look oh, okay. like there's more going on there. It's not just a flat surface. So, we we get into uh the sequence where they like the the warp engine is maybe not quite up to snuff quite yet. They're they're trying to get it calibrated, but Kirk wants warp now. Which one thing is really cool in the uh, the engine room? I guess mm-hmm. it's called the engine room, right? <laughs> they usually call it engineering, but engineering. I imagine the engine room is correct. That's even better. They've got this big column of glowing. It looks like glowing plasma or something inside this tube, and it's, it was actually a practical. Uh, light effect that they did on the stage these two guys had produced some uh, really cool techniques that they were working with lights are actually pointing at these drums that they rotate and on the surface of the drums is all this stuff like crumpled up aluminum foil and and colored gels so it colors the light as it passes through it and they rotate that and that kind of creates this weird swirling light effect that actually I, I always thought it was a post effect that they had done Mm-hmm. Um, you know, after the fact, but no, it was right there on the set. It looked amazing. Yeah. The, the engineering set in the series was, you know, some, some wood panels painted to look like there's buttons on them. Yeah. <laughs> and jumping to this is like, wow, this looks like a real spaceship. Now this looks like yeah. a thing that could exist. And they redesigned the corridors inside. Uh, so that I, I think, um, Gene Ronberry uh, described it as uh, Des Moines, Iowa, Holiday Inn style corridors <laughs> <laughs> that they had in the uh, the TV series. But now they've kind of got these like interesting angles and it looks a little bit more like, you know, maybe like a submarine kind of giving that quality to it. But if we uh, anyway, back to engineering. Kirk wants warp. Scotty's like, oh, kind of something. Yeah. <laughs> Poor Scotty. That's that's his entire job in this movie is to tell you that you can't do it and then sigh and do it anyway. <laughs> they do it and it creates a wormhole, which I'm not sure exactly how that happens, but it's it, there was a really cool effect that they built with uh, a laser. They had this contraption that would um, operate the laser and, and move it around in such a way that it kind of made these like oscilloscope type patterns. And they would, for each frame, they would have it like draw, be drawing this pattern and the camera would also move backwards during the 
uh, exposure so that it, it would it would kind of stretch out into this kind of tunnel like effect for each frame that was pretty mm-hmm. amazing yeah it looked really cool and again it's i'm trying really hard to look at this movie with the eyes of someone watching it in 1979 because you know of course compared to stuff they can do now it look kind of cheesy but at the time yeah looking at it from now it's like well this is something we could do in after effects in 15 minutes or whatever oh, shoot something. i could do it in an iMovie <laughs> it took them you know weeks and weeks to do this stuff. yeah there's actually like even during that wormhole sequence they have kind of this weird smeary uh stretchy effect with like all the shots on the bridge and it's like they shot it and then they would like you know take it and kind of mat out a piece that they wanted to smear and then they would use a motion control camera to like move the camera during the exposure to smear it in a certain way and they did all of these little pieces by hand and it like that whole sequence just the smearing took somebody like seven months to do and there is one thing at the end of that when they they finally get out of the wormhole and they get up close to V'ger and V'ger starts shooting these electrical things at them that uh, I mean, part of it was done with like a, a Tesla coil and a ring around it that mm-hmm. caught all of the little sparks shooting off of it. So it looked kind of that fuzzy, sparky edge to it. Yeah, we called it uh, Star Trek's first lens flare. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it, and it hits the console and like Chekhov screams because it's, <laughs> it's hit, you know, burned his arm. And oh. apparently uh, during production, they, it actually burned his arm. They, oh, jeez. <laughs> They had, uh, you know, like some solution that would make his uh, the fabric of his uniform kind of burn and smoke. And but they had, you know, some some asbestos padding and and like tin foil around his well, arm to protect. Nothing him. safer than asbestos. That's for darn sure. Yeah, <laughs> but apparently it leaked in around the edge, so his oh, screaming God. wasn't completely acting. While he's my least favorite character, I don't wish fire upon him. <laughs> All right, so they've they've kind of been flying over the surface of V'ger for a while, which is, you know, some really cool stuff. Like we were saying before, you know, the tiny little Enterprise and this vast landscape that looks like an enormous ship that this thing is built around itself. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we get to this like six-sided iris thing that is really weird. It, like, rotates and compresses in in such a way that looks like it's a you know like a photographic iris closing but it's actually when it compresses in that it opens in the center Mm -hmm. it's this very weird mechanical thing that uh this guy named ron resch designed and i'll I'll link in the show notes but there's this uh like 45 minute documentary about the guy that he like just kind of built these weird little um mechanical you know kind of 3d geometries that interacted in weird ways and he thought you know maybe like some of our uh designs for you know just household objects would eventually evolve in this direction i don't think they really have but it's still fascinating (laughs) stuff to watch yeah and what what did his title end up being geometrist or something like that (laughs) i yeah some sort of 3d geometer Uh, geometer that's what it was yeah so we have this little iris and uh, Spock decides to go down and, and give the Vulcan uh, neck pinch to this guy with a <laughs> fantastic mustache. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he gets in his little uh, uh, space suit, um, which apparently uh, Doug Trumbull redesigned at the last minute because he thought the ones they had designed for the film looked really silly. They had some half decent ones. They didn't use them very often. I can only think of two particular instances, but uh in the uh, third season, I know they used them for uh, the Tholian web. And oh, I thought yeah. they looked pretty okay. They could have spruced those up a little. But the ones but that these, have these the, don't look bad either. The weird little uh, 
kind of like like helmet. a screen door helmet. Yeah, exactly. Like a mesh helmet. Yeah. They go through and there's V'ger's home planet. They kind of projected that onto the sphere mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, did flybys of that and had the giant plaster cast of, uh, well, it wasn't giant. It looks giant in the film. <laughs> <laughs> it was a regular size plaster cast of Pierce's Kambata and her little um, doohickey in her neck. The, mm-hmm. the little glowy button thing. Um, and, you know, Spock tries to mind meld with it and there's all these uh, crazy effects and multiple exposures and stuff going on there that look really amazing. Yeah, they do. Uh, you know, there's something I should mention about the uh, the little uh, button, the lighted button that she has on her neck when she's the Ilya probe. Mm-hmm. It's a, you know, robot replication of uh, Ilya. Well, you know, obviously this is back before they had uh, lots of LEDs and, and stuff like that. This is, this is back before they had robot replication of uh, leading actresses. Right. <laughs> well, you know, we, we have like really tiny, cool sources of light now. Oh, yeah. But back then, you know, that was that was a big incandescent light bulb that they stuck on her neck. Whoa. So she's got a, a power pack on her back with the like these tiny little thin wires that go down her neck and connect to the light bulb and there's like wires that go down another arm that connect to an on and off switch and where she do tried- they hide this stuff she's wearing this almost sheer white nighty yeah well it's, it apparently is this tiny thin uh they call them just hair wires they're just mm-hmm. super super thin they put makeup on top of them and it just oh, okay. kind of disappears um but she, i mean she turned it off between each take but it still was like you know, this hot little light bulb on her neck and eventually oh. gave her a, a little tan mark on her <laughs> neck. But so all hot. the suffering that poor woman went through. She has to, and she has to burst through the door of the, oh, right. the medical scanning room. And they, apparently they built like eight of these <laughs> doors that like, you know, it was like kind of scored down the center and it's, you know, it's cardboard painted to look like it's metal with, you know, tin foil on one side. And so they made eight of them and she had, she went through, every single one of them before they got the best take like some of them would be too easy she'd just walk right through some of them she'd hack away and it would never open and <laughs> so she's ramming her face into this wall repeatedly <laughs> god poor woman i think it was at this point we were we had kind of like come to the point where we're like yes we know where this conversation is going that we started focusing on uhura's earpiece <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I, I remember reading that that is the only piece of, of prop or, or anything uh, from the original series that that made its way into the movie. And that only because kind of everybody forgot about it until Nichelle Nichols' first day on the set. And she's like, where's my earpiece? And they're like, uh, yeah. crap. <laughs> and they ran into the archives and picked her old earpiece out of a box. And here you go. Cleaned it off, I hope. <laughs> One would hope. <laughs> Man, you that's know, been in her ear for like 20 years now. <laughs> yeah, jeez. What I what I am amazed by, and I could be wrong, but I've never seen one, is how come there is no Bluetooth headset that looks like a Hura's earpiece? That seems like a wasted opportunity. Wow, you would think there would be. Yeah. There was one that looked like the old school uh, communicator with a flip top, right? But right. There's, that, there should be out there somewhere. That, I, that one's free. You you go ahead. If I find one, I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, very good. You can buy it and I'll get a kickback. <laughs> So they eventually, you know, come to some sort of agreement like, well, okay, we'll actually take you to V'ger itself. But they walk down into it's kind of like this bowl like structure with all sorts of bit computery bits and stuff. And they see that it's actually Voyager, Voyager 6, which I don't think ever actually existed. Mm -hmm. Apparently, they were actually trying to get 
the like this kind of backup uh, model that uh, uh, JPL had um, when they they had been working on the designs for the actual Voyager spacecraft. Oh, cool! <laughs> and uh, it didn't quite work out because the uh, they thought you know maybe it might get damaged somehow on the set. Somebody would be careless and right. you know, with with talk of perhaps someone getting almost electrocuted on that set <laughs> that right. might have been true uh that and like you know they they had like a similar lighting to the warp core on there you know the reflective drums and all of that underneath the set so it kind of you know it'd have the gentle blue lights or the angry red lights you know as right. richard gets uh upset and you know, those those were like ten thousand watt lights, and apparently, you know, the UV output from those lights gave some of the lighting guys suntans. <laughs> <laughs> Just working on this stuff, so it didn't seem like maybe the safest environment, right? But they, you know, they get down there and, and talk to Viger, and turns out, well, it needs the old NASA code so it can like finally dump out its information, and uh, you know, wants the creator to actually come and input it itself. Mm-hmm. And Decker uh, volunteers. You know, he wants to do this. This is this is yeah. His which thing. which I feel came from out of nowhere, story wise. Like why this guy? I don't know. It, it would have made more sense for Spock to do it, honestly. And not that maybe, I wanted Spock to leave, but I think part of it was that I think maybe that's why they had been setting up that there's just there was obviously a romantic involvement between him and Ilya early on, and he's kind of been giving her doe eyes even mm-hmm. since she became. Uh, the Ilya probe and she's not really Ilya anymore so it's you know maybe he's just so much in love with her that's like this is the only way I can be with her now I'll be you know volunteer to be digitized (laughs) (laughs) that's noble I guess (laughs) but they did this uh uh sequence where like you know it's like kind of this ascension transformation sequence where they they get digitized and kind of you know come together into this singular entity of V'ger and Ilya Probe and Decker and they have uh, you know all this like wind coming up and they've got these giant xenon like aircraft landing lights mm-hmm. <laughs> behind him that are just amazingly bright and uh, Pierce's Kambada is trying not to blink as the Ilya Probe because she's a robot why does she need to blink mm-hmm. and so you know, she's in the scene with him and Decker's backlit and she's like staring into this light and got retina damage <laughs> for, oh, for a few days. So. Even more. Yes. So she, she is the true hero of this. Yeah. No story. kidding. <laughs> but it, I think it all comes back to, uh, the, the machine trying to find its creator, you know, trying to tie that back into the human condition, which is, you know, as yeah, you there's said, really Star no Trek more Star Trek thing you could do than something learning that being human is the best thing of all because humans are great. Yay, humans. Yeah, I just I, I feel like while it's not the strongest movie, it does definitely have its charms. But uh, I don't know. I, Gene had this idea that drama has no conflict, and I don't know how he managed so long in Hollywood with this notion that that all the characters get along and nothing gets in their way and everything is great. That's not how drama works, Mr. Roddenberry. Well, I think he was trying to do it so that that internally the characters on the ship got along and it was always an external uh, element to the conflict. 
Right, uh, but V'ger isn't really that. I mean, it's it ends up being a big misunderstanding. Right, and even at the end, when it's like, a, you know, V'ger is going to maybe digitize the whole planet just to find mm-hmm. the creator. I don't know. It almost, it never felt like uh, a real threat because, you know, we we know how good kirk is at talking computers out of things so yeah and that's another thing he should have defeated it by outsmarting it by sending it into a logic loop and making it explode that's how kirk works no it's like i say it's it's not a bad movie at all and and all this visual stuff in it is pretty great and i you know definitely worth looking at on blu-ray i'm I'm curious to see all the stuff that i can't see in my version and it's maybe just with the story we've just kind of become so cynical and jaded with a you know constant action 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 with uh newer movies that maybe with these older uh slower stories we don't have as much patience for it i know with like 2001 this it is held up as like the holy grail of of science fiction movies of a certain era and i have tried to watch it so many <laughs> times and i feel like i feel bad that i don't love it don't and, you, you don't you feel like there's must be something wrong with you i i feel yeah, that way about exactly. certain classic movies not that one but certain classic movies are just like uh, everyone else likes this and everyone else thinks this is something I'm supposed to like and I don't like. What What is wrong with me? What exactly. am I not seeing here? <laughs> That's exactly how I feel. But on the other and hand, I keep trying it. But 2001 is one of my favorite movies and I have zero attention span. I don't I don't find that movie slow until the until the very end, the the, the light tripping scene. How is that even possible? I don't know what to tell you. It's I just I think the slowness and the deliberateness in that mm. has to do with the way the way space actually would be i think it's because it's so hmm. realish you know what i mean like it would take you like a full minute to get across a room if you're slowly working you know in weightlessness or you don't understand what i mean like right. all the slowness felt intentional to to drum home the point that space is not this big actiony place it's it's actually very slow and tedious Right. Which is, I mean, I don't know. I like other Kubrick movies as well that are, you know, had very deliberately paced and, and almost trance-like in, in some mm-hmm. places. But they, it's, I don't know. For some reason, that one, I don't know. Maybe I've just been infected by Star Wars too much and expect action and adventure and explosions. And I just, I don't uh, think, well, first of all, I don't think that that's true. Second of all, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. <laughs> I think you can have a very ponderous, thought-provoking, high-concept sci-fi movie and also have explosions. Like I said, Alien kind of fits in that category for me. Hmm. Where it, it still feels like an old-school sci-fi movie with some interesting concepts in it that aren't even completely explored. There's a lot of mystery still in that movie, which I like. Yeah. But it also has some action. That's true. I think it's possible to do both. Like while Star Trek is about the human condition and blah, 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 whatever. We, we Their guy was with ray guns. We want to see something go pew, pew at some point. <laughs> exactly. Well, we will get to some more uh, pew, pew in just a little bit uh, mm-hmm. talking about Alien. But first, let's talk to Darren Doctorman, who was the VFX supervisor for the director's edition of Star Trek The Motion Picture, and maybe we can get some more answers from him. Thanks for being on, Al. Yeah, thanks for having me.
With me here is Darren Docterman, who was a visual effects supervisor on Star Trek The Motion Picture Director's Edition. Is that right? That's correct. How are you, Mark? Good. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> so what does the job of visual effects supervisor entail? Well, uh, usually it entails uh, basically being responsible for the delivery and concept of visual effects shots in a project. On Star Trek The Motion Picture, I was basically employed by uh, Robert Wise Productions and uh, Robert Wise, the director, Mm -hmm. and basically with myself and uh, my two other partners in the project, uh, David Fine and Michael Mattesino, we divvied up the uh, responsibilities of producing the director's edition of Star Trek The Motion Picture that was released back in 2001. And my responsibilities fell on, you know, being the visual effects supervisor and basically planning out and producing the visual effects shots. Okay. From what I've I've heard, <laughs> there wasn't <laughs> a lot of time to uh, get the, once the visual effects shots were, were getting in, kind of down to the wire on uh, the original release, that there wasn't a lot of time to go back and kind of trim and, and see where yeah. things stood. There was no time uh, on the original release. It was originally going to be released on December 7th, 1979, mm-hmm. and it was, and that was a drop-dead date, and there was no wiggle room anywhere because exhibitors had already signed and agreed to show it then, and the head of the studio, Paramount at the time, said that uh, there will be Star Trek The Motion Picture in theaters on December 7th, even if we have to put in blank leader. <laughs> wow. So it was drop dead and various problems that the original company had in delivering visual effects in a timely manner. Right. Uh, they were let go and Doug Trumbull and John Dykstra were brought in to basically do the film in a very short space of time about, I believe it was eight to nine months to deliver all of the effects shots for the film. Wow. Uh, and, you know, after a year had been spent uh, with this other company. Wow. So they were getting in shots at the very last minute. And uh, honestly, on some of them, the shots, the, the space allotted in the cut for the shots themselves mm-hmm. were to the frame. And there was no editing done to the shots as they come in. So if you look at the theatrical edition, you can see that... There are some shots that have two or three frames of basically still, and then the shot starts. So they were from beginning frame to ending frame, just popped into the release negative, and that was it. There was no finessing at all. There wasn't even trimming. So it was, uh, yeah, there was no, <laughs> no cut. There was no preview uh, preview screenings at all, so they could uh, adjust the timing of anything. So it was... Just drop dead delivery. Holy and, cow. Uh, the, the music itself, the, the music was being recorded six days before the release. Whoa. Six days. So, yeah, it was, <laughs> it was out the wire. So the, the impetus of uh, doing the director's edition was to give Robert Wise his standard two months extra post-production that he should have had back in 79 that he couldn't. So that's basically how it was treated. Hmm. We used the original storyboards and the original planning where we could mm-hmm. to continue where it would have been in 79. Wow. How, how did you get involved with this? Because your credits list seems to indicate that you're 
you're much more focused on illustration usually. Well, yeah, I worked in the uh, industry more or less for 25 years doing concept illustration and, you know, set sketching and uh, storyboards early on in my career. So that's basically what I've done and what I had been doing previously to the motion picture. Mm-hmm. Um, I had worked in visual effects capacity on several movies doing storyboards and working with the effects department. So I had previous experience in that realm. But when I got involved with Dave Fine and Michael Matasino, who had previously worked with uh, Robert Wise on the Sound of Music DVD, hmm. um, and they had a previous relation with him, and uh, I had worked with them on the Alien Legacy documentary and the Alien Discs. Uh-huh. I knew them, and, and they knew what a huge Star Trek fan I was, and I was very insistent when they mentioned that there might be a possibility of doing the Star Trek The Motion Picture Project. I was with them all the way, and we <laughs> went to uh, Robert Wise and talked to him about the project. He he didn't want to talk about it, actually, at first. Oh? Because for pretty much 18 years after the release, he was very down on the project because he didn't have a good experience the first time around because of the... Uh, scheduling and the rush of everything he was you know basically dropped in on this project at the relatively last minute and was trusted with finishing this project that had been in development for years and years and they oh as the tv series well it was going to be a tv series on the new paramount network that they didn't get around to until the uh, late 80s right and it went through a lot of development this the original script was originally one of the scripts for the uh, abandoned phase two uh, tv series hmm. so and plus there were two theatrical productions oh really uh, yeah, two two movie projects that went through various stages of development that didn't go through. Huh. And remember, all of the budgetary costs from all of those projects went immediately day one into the cost on Star Trek The Motion Picture. So all of that previous <laughs> development work was figured in before they shot a frame of film. Oh. So, <laughs> so uh, immediately day one, he was uh, you know behind schedule and over budget. <laughs> Wow. So yeah. So I I, I got a <laughs> I long long way around on that one. I I got involved with the uh, Dave Fine and uh, Mike Medicino and uh, helped them uh, you know pitch our involvement of the project to Robert Wise and then mm-hmm. uh, assisted him in pitching the idea to the studio. And you know about a year and a half later, uh, the studio finally said yes. Oh, that's very cool. You finally got to go back and do some of the stuff that was originally storyboarded, but that didn't have time to make it into the film yeah and do basically give robert wise his director's cut that he never got hmm. we were lucky enough to uh, screen the film with him at the director's guild on the uh, 20th anniversary of the release of the film mm-hmm. we uh, showed it to him in the lovely theater at the dga and he was very jazzed about it and he was uh, <laughs> saying you know I, I think we can do something with this so there are a lot of very subtle changes that only the crazy fans would notice in the cut itself. Right. But, you know, I have to say that in, in looking at it and being one of those crazy fans myself before <laughs> this happened, I think changes that work best in it are the ones that just make the movie flow so much better than mm-hmm. it did before, in my opinion. So what, which shots are, are what, what were you most proud of, I guess? Hmm. Well, you know what? The... I'm proud of all the shots that no one notices, basically. (laughs) I'm very glad that we were able to build a CG USS Enterprise model that uh, we were able to light correctly and have it play next to other shots of the 
physical enterprise, and uh, people don't notice that they're there. Oh, very nice. Uh, that was very exciting, and I'm very proud of that aspect. We had what was then Foundation Imaging, which was a great effects company who did a lot of work on the later Star Trek series and mm-hmm. did Babylon 5 and, and those things. And we had a great small little uh, rogue team in Foundation Imaging who was doing the bulk of our CG shots. And they did an absolutely wonderful job in getting the tone and the look of the original footage, goosing it up just a little bit to uh, you know, make things work better with the timings and all that sort of things. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm very happy. that There were, I think, three, three or four major sequences in it mm-hmm. that we readdressed. One was the Vulcan sequence at the beginning with Spock and the Vulcan masters mm-hmm. in the Vulcan temple of Kolinar. And that was replacing a few shots that were previously painted by Matt Yurisich under <laughs> under very short time constraint and duress. And the great <laughs> paintings that he had done, mm-hmm. which were you know much more brightly lit and really looked gorgeous. There's a couple of behind the scenes shots of that that you know are completely different than what were shown in the original theatrical release. Huh. But we went back to the style of those and made, you know, more of a daytime Vulcan setting. Right, because it and, seemed in uh, the in the Vulcan shots in the original release, there's Spock kind of, you know, looking up at the sun and shielding his eyes from it with his hand. And then you and then we <laughs> and then we cut to the to the uh, reverse shot and we see, well, it's basically black space and two uh, two moon like objects up there. Right. Yeah, that was very, very odd. And, uh, yeah, shielding his eyes from what again? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the Vulcan sequence was a, was a good one. And mm-hmm. we also did some reworking of the San Francisco sequence right after that. Right. And with uh, several uh, new establishing shots of San Francisco. And basically the wing walk sequence at the end where our crew members walk on the surface of the Enterprise and then walk across the, the, the magical uh, tetrahedron or uh, dodecahedron platforms that V'ger presents to them to go to the V'ger island. Right. There, it seemed like there was a lot more of that in the original cut. And then in the director's edition, there, was, uh, there were very small, thin kind of little roads made of that giant's causeway kind of looking. Yeah, at the, in the original uh, release, it was always intended to be these small walkways that V'ger set up for them. As it is in the theatrical edition, it looks like the Enterprise pulls up to a loading dock. (laughs) (laughs) There's, you know, all these things up there. But in the original planning, V'ger Island was alone in this opening in the the ship. Mm -hmm. And then it created the bridge out to them so that they could walk across. And to me, that's much more dramatic and, and a dynamic thing to happen. So that actually was uh, very well storyboarded, and we had those, and we followed those almost to the letter. And there was one other large shot that I noticed that, I, I guess it, it wasn't that long, but it was, uh, you finally saw the whole of the V'ger ship, which you never quite saw in the original. Yeah, yeah, we have uh, the V'ger reveal where the uh, cloud dissipates, and we see it over Earth. And, uh, you know, that was something that was always planned, but they never really got around to realizing it. Mostly because the uh, <laughs> V'ger actually never existed as one whole unit. <laughs> the size that was uh, necessary for shooting the miniatures at Apogee, mm. John Dykstra's company, each section of the miniature were about 30 to 40 feet long. 
and none of them were ready at the same time. They were working on one section. When they finished that, they'd work on the second section and shoot on the first section. Oh, wow. So none of it existed together. And if it had, it would have been probably around 100 feet long. Holy so, cow. you know. It, there's, <laughs> I think there are very few, if any, sound stages where you could get a camera that far back to get the whole thing into <laughs> one shot. So uh, we had several production paintings that show the Vija reveal, mm-hmm. and we were able to, with uh, Mr. Wise's judgment, he picked the best one out of that to show both the size and scale of V'ger and let us see what we've been flying around for the past half hour. That's great. Um, were there any shots that you had a real tough time with kind of getting into the director's edition or, or wish that you could have completed differently? Well, there's, there's a couple little things. I mean, the, you know, the one that I, I got the most flack for was the officer's lounge scene where we show the engines outside the windows. Mm-hmm. And first of all, that's, that was originally planned to be a much grander lounge in the back. And when they got around to shoot it on stage, they basically had no money left for stages, so they, they took some flats that were in the uh, recreation deck mm-hmm. and set them up and you know put those uh, orange couches in front of them and then called it a day. <laughs> Andy Probert, one of the original production illustrators on the movie, had designed this great lounge that was basically behind the bridge section on, on a, a couple decks below the bridge, and it has these huge windows that look out onto the uh, surface of the ship, and mm-hmm. we see the nacelles back there. But at that point, when we were working on the director's edition, there was really no way to efficiently and quickly rotoscope the actors away from the standing flats that were there Mm. and isolate them enough. So we, like the original production, had to compromise a little bit, and we just tried to put the uh, engines out the window in the best place uh, that we could figure out. It doesn't... (laughs) really line up with the windows in the back of the ship and that's sort of one of those things that you have to just do your best with and work with the limitations that you have sure so if if i had it to do again today i would a lot three months for rotoscope work on that and <laughs> basically replace the whole back of the shot with a version of the officer's lounge that actually corresponds to the exterior of the ship and uh, that would be nice to do yeah i saw uh, that concept on your blog that yeah i i really I, nice I played around with it, you know, only able to do a still of it because of all that complicated roto work. And Dr. McCoy doesn't really make things any easier with the amount of flap that his uh, pant legs do. So, <laughs> but, you know, that said, these days it is at least easier, if not quicker. Sure. <laughs> I, I still think the shot came out really well. It's nice to see that kind of relationship to the, you know, the outside and the, the rest of the ship there. That, that's one of the edicts that Mr. Wise gave us at the beginning. He didn't want to lose the scope of the movie. So, you know, one of the ways that they tried to in the original shooting of it was to try wherever they could to relate the interiors with the exteriors. There is a backing painting in the rec deck that you can barely see in the uh, recreation room scenes. Mm-hmm. That show the exterior of the ship, but when they came around to uh, you know, finalizing those shots, they realized, well, our version of the ship now doesn't look like what it did in the painting, so they had to hide it as much as they could. Oh. That's one of the problems with having on-set existing backings like that, where you're relying on the design of visual effects that won't occur for another year or a year and a half later. Huh. So were the when you did this uh, director's edition, were the shots completed at film resolution? Because there 
doesn't seem to be a Blu-ray version uh, output yet, but maybe, maybe yeah, they just there, haven't gotten to it. There is not. Well, we tried. We we uh, we our proposal included a film res finaling of the director's edition uh-huh. and the ability to go back to a film negative. The studio, for their reasons, did not want to hear that, and because we were working through the home entertainment division. Uh-huh. They were only interested in the project being released on DVD, and so they were not interested in funding anything past that. Huh. So we uh, we were uh, limited to outputting at DigiBeta resolution, which is uh, I think 720 by 480. So wow. that's that's how it exists. I mean, we certainly we planned everything to go uh, at FilmRes. Mm-hmm. All the models were built to hold up to that, and uh, you know we wanted to. But one of the things you have to work with is your budget, and we just did not have the budget to render any of the stuff out at film res. Mm. But, uh, you know, that's just how it goes. Sure. Has there been any talk of revisiting that for a new Blu-ray uh, edition? From the people who would actually pay for it? Uh, not that I know of. <laughs> <laughs> there, there certainly is a lot of interest in the fan community for it, and I, I think every four or five days or so, I get a message from someone saying, hey, has, uh, has there been any talk about a Blu-ray of the director's edition? And, um, you know, I haven't gotten to the point where I send out a forum letter yet, but the answer is, I would love to do it. I would love to have the studio come to us and say, hey, we'd like you to do this. It's harder now to use the older effects setups that we did mm-hmm. because the software has moved on and a lot of things are not compatible anymore. Right. But it is possible. You know, we certainly can, you know, recreate stuff if we need to. It would have been a lot easier, you know, 10 years ago. <laughs> I, I wish they had uh, come around then, but sure. that's, that's business. Fair enough. But you have done some other stuff that is Star Trek related. You've, I understand, worked on uh, some of the Star Trek New Voyages, which I, I also called Phase Two. I'm a little confused about the title yeah. there. Uh, well, Star Trek New Voyages started about 12 years ago, something like that. Well, almost 10, actually, hmm. as a fan production that uh, you know, just these guys in upstate New York set up some Star Trek sets and just started making Star Trek. All right. Then uh, years later, you know, they decided to uh, move on and change the name to Phase Two. Oh, I uh, see. Based on the planned but abandoned Phase 2 series that Paramount was going to do. Right. They contacted me, what was it, about maybe six years ago? James Cauley, who, uh, who runs the whole thing, mm-hmm. and he's uh, you know, one of the hugest Star Trek fans I've ever met. And uh, really fun guy. He, you know, he basically started this because he wanted to play Captain Kirk and, and play Star Trek with his friends. <laughs> and you know, I, I don't blame him. That's a fun thing to do. That sounds like great fun. It is. You know, I, I, I looked at their first couple of uh, shows, and you know what? The the energy and enthusiasm was unmatched, you know, and I, I've talked with him about it, and it does have that high school play uh, quality to it, mm-hmm. and, you know, that's understandable. I mean, you know, there weren't any, you know, real trained actors in it, and it was mostly done for fun. The, the funny thing is that everything else in the production was so top-notch that there was a little bit of a disconnect that, man, if, if they could do this with other actors or, you know, uh, <laughs> more trained actors, sure. this, this would be awesome. I, and, I understand you've done some acting on that as well. That a correct? little bit, a little bit, <laughs> just for fun. You know, I wrote that review up on my blog back 
a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, James Cawley actually sent me a note saying, listen, I saw some of your work on the director's edition, and uh, I also did a pitch for redoing the original series effects in CG and, and uh, replacing that, which Paramount later did. And uh, he wanted to see if I would be interested in helping them out with their production. And I said, you know what? It, sure, <laughs> why not? <laughs> uh, and so I, I went up there uh, one summer when they were doing a shoot that uh, David Gerald was directing at the time. David Gerald, of course, being the writer of Trouble with Tribbles and uh, one of the original creators of the Star Trek series and Next Generation. Hmm. David is uh, very heavily involved in working with these guys. He also got uh, Dorothy Fontana to uh, write an episode for them. And and they both got uh, Walter Koenig and George Takei to uh, come and reprise their roles in the the show. Wow. it's 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 really fun because you get to it's basically a Star Trek summer camp. <laughs> it's basically field of dreams for Star Trek fans. You go there and you get to work on a production and have some fun. Hmm. And you know it is a lot of fun. And I I went up there just observing and uh, helping with some visual effects stuff on that first one. And then James called me and said, "Hey, would you like to act in one?" Well, because he knew that I was a bit of a ham, and uh, we were goofing around on set on the David Gerald shoot, and I'd do a, a moderately uh, accurate William Shatner impersonation, and, and we were you know, goofing around with that. And so he, he said he, he got this script from a fan who wanted to get an episode in there, and it was a sequel to the original series episode Bread and Circuses, where they go to the Roman planet, mm-hmm. and he wanted me to uh, play the proconsul the Caesar of the Roman planet. And I said, you know what? That sounds like a lot of fun. And so he sent me the script. And then uh, a few months later, I was uh, there in uh, upstate New York playing the pro council. And it was a, a whole lot of, lot of fun. Are you directing an upcoming episode as well? Is that correct? Yeah. Well, this past June, I was up there and directed an episode called The Holiest Thing, written by Rick Chambers, the same guy who wrote The Bread and Savagery, which is the name of the episode I played the pro counsel in. Uh And that is, we are in the midst of post-production on that right now, finishing it up for a February 14th Valentine's Day release, because uh, it involves, let's just say, uh, the uh, meeting of Captain Kirk and, uh, okay, I'll say it, it's... uh, it's Dr. Marcus. Ah, very so cool. It's our, it's our take on how they met. Uh, very, very cool. Well, that, that'll be about a month and a half after this podcast here, so we'll, we'll have to link to that from the blog. That'd be good. Um, one more Star Trek-related thing. Uh, sure. I understand you did some uh, effects work on... Was it the first episode of Voyager? Uh, I didn't do effects work. I did uh, concept art work. On oh, the first sorry. Voyager. Yeah, I was hired as an illustrator on that, working with uh, Rick Sternback and uh, Richard James, the production designer, on the pilot. And uh, I got to design some stuff. And it was basically just filling in because, you know, Rick was busy working on designing the Voyager itself. Uh-huh. And, you know, they needed someone else to come in and pinch hit for uh, doing some of the other stuff that was in the episode. So I, I was there for a few months working in a nice little office on Paramount. It was fun. It was basically my first job with the Next Generation crew, which was fun. I mean, not the, <laughs> not the on-screen crew, but the back the behind-the-scenes crew right. who, uh, who were on Voyager. And that was a lot of fun. 
Oh, that's cool. You do do a lot of illustration. What um, What's your experience of that? What sort of uh, illustration have you done? And uh, what, what kind of stuff do you prefer to do? Well, I, I really enjoy uh, designing things and coming up with uh, concept art and, uh, you know, designing either sets or props or vehicles or things like that. Mm-hmm. And that's just something that I really enjoy to do and uh, especially working for fun people who enjoy it, too. I've also done storyboards in the past. That is less fun for me because it's a lot of redoing things because that's just the nature of of the beast. How so? But, well, because uh, you know, the the moment you finish a sequence, uh, either the script has changed or the director <laughs> changed their minds, or uh, the what you came up with is entirely what they don't want. <laughs> a lot, a lot of times, the job of the illustrator is to show everybody what they don't want to do (laughs) because it's basically the first take of what the script is going to entail because a lot of people who read the script in movie business don't actually visualize what it's going to be and that's you know thank goodness for that or i would be out of a job (laughs) but the job of the uh, production illustrator and the art department is to show them what it's going to be and what the problems are going to be in doing it so that's uh, a lot of fun but it's also you know, a little bit frustrating when everyone isn't on the same page. But the job that I do is to help everyone get on the same page. And uh, according to the director and the production designer and how they want things to be, mm-hmm. to direct things in that direction <laughs> to be redundant. <laughs> so it's you kind of give them that first, oh, I didn't realize it was going to be that way. Yeah, let's, exactly. Let's change that up. <laughs> exactly. Yep. So. That happens a lot in storyboards, too. When they see the extent of a sequence, they say, oh, okay, well, we can't afford that. Let's uh, pare it down and figure out another way to do this. Mm. And, you know, that, that's, that's fun to figure out, but there are guys who are way better at that uh, that I would rather have them do that. <laughs> <laughs> so what is the difference between, what is like conceptual illustration versus product you list as production illustrator on several yeah, movies it's, it's a very fine line it's basically whatever the production wants to call me <laughs> the difference is uh, is very slight but when i'm doing a uh, a concept illustration job i'm also coming up with the ideas behind the drawings and uh, and designs and uh, just the regular production illustrator is there to uh, basically draw what the either director or production designer have in mind Mm. to show everyone else. Obviously, the concept illustrator has to answer to the director and the uh, production designer. Right. But uh, it's more of a a creative job than the uh, regular production illustrator job. But beyond that, it's it's only a question of semantics at at what they want to call you uh, that week. So... (laughs) Are, are there any um, films that you've worked on that you're, you're especially fond of having done illustration for? You know, they're all fun in their own way. I will say that the most of my stuff that has got into a movie is uh, from a few years ago from the Chronicles of Riddick. Oh. Where I, I got to work with a great team of uh, concept guys. And the first half of that movie with all the bad guys is, uh, are my designs and uh, another guy by the name of Matt Codd who is a great illustrator, too. And, you know, we basically worked on the bad guys in that and designed everything from oh, their wow. their vehicles and their costumes and their uh, environments and all that sort of stuff. And that was a lot of fun. Every frame is something that I worked on. So that's, that's the most uh, enjoyment I get from designing and 
doing concept illustration. Very, very cool. You've worked on uh, a couple of uh, ones that I've really enjoyed over the last few years of the the new Tron Legacy movie and also Pacific Rim. Is that correct? I didn't work on Pacific Rim. Oh, okay. (laughs) IMDb has it wrong, I guess. I enjoyed it, though. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm, I wonder what that is. I'll have to check my IMDb thing. Maybe, you know, maybe I worked at it without knowing it. Uh, but uh, no, uh, yeah, I, I got to work on Tron Legacy for a little bit in the first few weeks. I I didn't get to do any of the fun stuff though. I got to I got to work on the real real Earth time uh, locations. I uh, I did get to go and scout the original Flynn's Arcade and in Culver City, and uh, it's now a restaurant and very boring. But uh, the exterior looks the same. And uh, I got to do some concept work of uh, how the exterior would look these days where, uh, you know, Flynn's son goes and discovers the secret room and all that sort of stuff. And and, uh, I did uh, a couple paintings of the uh, dilapidated arcade machine standing idle in the show. So that was fun. And you were also a production illustrator on Master and Commander of Far Side of the World. Yeah, that was a fun one. That was a fun one. Not only working with... uh, Bill Sandel, who is a, a production designer that I've worked with many times before, but also for the great Peter Weir, who I, I've loved his movies uh, for years and years. I got to learn all about sailing ships and what, how they went together, and it, that was all shot down in uh, the Baja studios that Cameron set up for Titanic, uh, the, the Fox Baja studios down in Mexico. And uh, I got to go down there and uh, and play around on the on the fake sailing ships and and uh, my job basically was to come up with the way and extent of the damage that the surprise would undergo during the various attacks and then how they would repair it. And so uh, I did a bunch of drawings uh, of figuring that out and uh, working with the, uh, the maritime advisors and you know these guys who've built replicas of sailing ships and knew exactly which end was what and uh, how they would go about repairing things in the middle of the ocean, basically. So uh, that was a lot of fun to learn about. That's the great thing about working on movies is that for the space of a few months, you you have to take a crash course in all these various topics and become very knowledgeable about them in a very short amount of time so that you can basically fake it. (laughs) <laughs> as, you, as you go through and uh, make everything as real as possible. And so that's a, that was a fun one. And I'm really proud that uh, you know, my name is attached to that movie because it was, I, it's one of my favorites. And when I first read the script, I was thinking, holy cow, this is Star Trek. <laughs> this is, There's definitely a, that kind of Kirk Bones vibe <laughs> between the main characters. And, uh, those books were written in, I think, like 1972 or 73. Huh. So I got a feeling that there was uh, a little of that uh, energy that the author included in the book. I really think that there was an influence there. The Master and Commander is definitely uh, one of my top movies, and uh, it's having a great, that, it's a great film, yeah. and it really puts you it puts you there. It's you know it's uh, very happy with it. You mentioned earlier that you uh, worked on the Alien Legacy documentary. What mm-hmm. was your involvement with that? Well. Uh, I was uh, basically as an uh, an art director on the DVD project. Uh, this was uh, for the first. <laughs> how many alien discs have there been? Quite <laughs> a few. Uh, this was before the 
the the mammoth uh, DVD set that had everything in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was, I think, the first release on DVD of Alien. And uh, we did a half-an-hour documentary that was, I think, called The Eighth Passenger, something like that. Fox retitled it. It was a documentary uh, interviewing a bunch of the people who worked on the original Alien. And that was a lot of fun because I got to go on several of the interviews with a bunch of the crew. I, I had known Ron Cobb from years ago. I, my first project I worked on was The Abyss, and I got to meet him on that and uh, work on that as a production assistant. And that was uh, a lot of fun. And I I'd always loved Ron Cobb's designs and was a big fan of his, particularly from his work on Alien. So I was able to uh, be around for his interview and for uh, Les Dilly, who was the designer on The Abyss and was an art director on Alien. And so I got to, uh, I got to be around for that. And uh, the role of an art director on a documentary is extremely little. <laughs> <laughs> That's a title that I was happy with because I got to you know, design the on-screen graphics and the title sequence and all that sort of stuff. The main thing was that I got to help with uh, interviews, and they asked my opinion on the cut of the documentary. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Very nice. Actually, by coincidence, we're going to be talking about Alien in our next segment. One of my favorites. Is there anything you're working on now that you'd like to plug? Well, I finished a, a couple months on the uh, Batman versus Superman movie. Ah, nice. Uh, and that's uh, all I can say about that. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> otherwise, they would kill me. Uh, in a horrible way. Fair enough. And uh, so where can people find more about your work? Well, uh, they can always find what I'm doing on beta5.com. That's all one word, B-E-T-A-F-I-V-E.com. They can look up my blog, blog.darendoc.com, and that's darendoc, D-A-R-E-N-D-O-C.com. Look for uh, Star Trek Phase 2 uh, on the web. Uh, they're releasing a uh, an episode, Kitumba, which was... Uh, a, a very big fan uh, requested one. It's a, uh, a big original series story about the Klingons, and that's coming out uh, the first of the year. And then uh, my episode, The Holiest Thing, on uh, February 14th, Valentine's Day, a uh, love story for Captain Kirk. Oh, very cool. Have to check that out. I'm all over the place uh, <laughs> and can be found quite easily, unfortunately. <laughs> Cool. Well, we'll put those in the show notes to make it even easier. Uh, Thank you, Darren, for coming on. Thanks so much, Mark. This edition of the Optical Trivia Contest brought to you by Cinefix. Are you a fan of movie magic? Of course you are and Cinefix is the magazine for you. This quarterly publication has been documenting motion picture visual effects for more than three decades. Since 1980, it's been the Bible for the visual effects industry and a favorite magazine of movie effects enthusiasts all over the world, covering the field like no other publication. Profusely illustrated in color with in-depth articles and interviews and as many as 150 pages per issue, Cinefix offers a captivating look at the technologies and techniques behind our most popular and enduring films. Order your subscription today at Cinefix.com or check out their new iPad edition, an enhanced version of the print magazine with even more photos, video content, and interactivity. Available now on iTunes. 
For this edition of the Trivia Contest, answer this question. What was the number printed on the side of the shuttle pod that Kirk and Scotty took over to the Enterprise at the beginning of Star Trek The Motion Picture? Send your answer to feedback at opticalpodcast.com by January 31st for your chance to win. One winner will be randomly picked from the correct entries to receive a one-year subscription to the print edition of Cinefx Magazine. That's four issues in your mailbox. This music and all of the music in this episode is from our good friend Digital Drew, who also composed the theme for the podcast. The tracks that appear in this episode will be listed in the show notes, but you can find more of Drew's music at DigitalDrew, that's D-R-O-O dot com. Next up, our discussion with Tom Schmidt of Percolate Digital about what is an optical anyway. So for our first tech segment, I brought on uh, my good friend Tom Schmidt. Tom, how are you doing? Good, Mark. And uh, we're uh, since the podcast is called the Optical. What what is an optical? What's an optical shot? Well, an optical to me, um, as I grew up in this industry, an optical was always that that special piece of post production magic that was in film, where a something that was not there when originally shot was added later. And that could be anything from uh, a matte painting of the castle on the mountain as they're approaching it from below to something as noted as like the Death Star hovering over a planet to model work in the foreground where you might add some forced perspective stuff in the foreground that would be either small cars or buildings or something along those lines. Or like that shot in Star Trek, uh, the motion picture, and there's like this shot of uh, Spock on Vulcan, and there's like kind of this big, uh, you know, stairs leading up to this temple that aren't really there in real life, but they're just kind of like sitting a few feet in front of the camera. Yeah, and then you know Leonard Nimoy and everybody else are way off in the distance. So it, exactly, it looks exactly. like they're the same size. And that's you know that's a nuanced thing. I don't even think they do anymore because um, obviously we can add stuff in in CG and and uh, and composite uh, with tracking and all that sort of thing. But back then, you know, you had to make the perspective match where you're going to put your camera. So right, it was it very much limited where you could <laughs> how you could move your camera. So you had to be you had to be much more careful in how you set up your shots nowadays. You know what's replaced the optical are things like tracking dots and and um, and you know set extensions. CGI where, and CGI. You know CGI has is you know is, is still an optical, still very much uh, uh, placing things in the scene that were were not there. But you know the benefits to us today is that we can be much more freeform right. and allow the filmmaker uh, a far greater latitude to you know make it up as they go. Right. There's you know, back in back in the optical days, man. You just you know your camera was locked down, and you remember you always could tell when an optical shot was coming because all of a sudden the camera would be perfectly still. Right? <laughs> yeah, you know, like we could go from like panning and flying cameras to all of a sudden the camera's locked down. 
and we're now on our optical. <laughs> so is that the an optical shot is probably what we would now call VFX or visual effects. At what point did that become VFX instead of an optical? Is that kind of when when we went away from like actually using you know film and optical printers to actually you know put two pieces of film together versus you know the the modern forms of digital compositing and all that is that kind of when the the word optical fell out of favor do you think or? i think so you know that's an interesting question because i think that's one of those things where once they started to make the migration over to digital i think the industry kind of said okay we really can't call it an optical anymore cuz we're not using optical printers so they had to come up with you know, a larger term for it. I think VFX is what's stuck. You know, in terms of, of what we do at Percolate, we're, you know, we're working now in the 4K realm. And we're discovering that within the industry, uh, 4K is, is the accepted name of the format that we're working in. But in, mm-hmm. in consumer, in the consumer end of our world, the preferred term is UHD. All right, uh, ultra, ultra HD. Ultra HD, ultra high definition, because, you know, the industry, and I, to their credit, realizes that people get HD. They understand HD because everybody has HD. So let's put a U in front of it. And that makes more sense to people than 4K, because I can't tell you how many people have asked us what 4K is, hmm. and, but they do get UHD. So there's kind of been this migration over to UHD simply because it wasn't informative or correct to really call it 4K, and plus it just wouldn't stick. <laughs> right, because it's actually, what, 3,960 pixels wide instead yeah, of... <laughs> yeah, 3840 by 2160. I got that tattooed on my arm. <laughs> so the, kind of the same thing with optical versus visual effects. It's like once they actually stopped using like actual optics lenses to you know kind of put this stuff together, that's kind of, you know, well, why call it optics... Optical yeah. anymore. Yeah, they had to. And I, but I always liked the term optical. You know, when, when you started this podcast <laughs> and, and the website, I thought that's such a great name for this, though, because I think the, the majority of people that work in VFX now have a great love of the craftsmanship that opticals required. Hmm. Um, there's a certain sloppiness we can get away with now. Back when they were doing real optical printer and they were packing film and, you know, you had to go through. God knows how many layers of, of packed film to create one optical. You know, it just, it, it was a much more, God, I just think the people were smarter. I really do. Because <laughs> they just simply had to come up with these incredible ways to do these really complex effects, but kind of make it all happen in, in one pass. Otherwise, you get generational loss because you can't, you know, printing and reprinting film. Obviously, you get degradation, you know, and you, you don't have that anymore in digital. Because, uh, I mean, a lot of times you'll have at least five layers of film. There'll be like, you know, the one element and then a holdout mat for that element and then another element and the holdout mat for that. And then yeah. putting that onto the, you know, final piece of film and, yeah. and just having to understand the physics of like how the light actually bends through all of those lenses to get to the same size image on the other end of it. Exactly. <laughs> and then the color correction involved in that. And, you know, just having one mat that's just a little bit out of line. And, you know, you look at things like the, you know, the, the scene of um, the Enterprise leaving dry dock. I believe it was a high con. They didn't do it on green screen or blue screen. They did it as a high con. Oh, yeah. It was a, like a completely white background and the, the model element kind of in, in shadow in front of it. So right. they would have a black and white element. And, and with that and with doing it as a high con, 
in the reflective surface of the enterprise model, you would still see a lot of tearing on the surface of it because it simply was not a perfect map. Because there was a reflection from that white background on yeah. the surface of the model itself. Yeah, yeah. If I'm not mistaken, be, they, they chose to go with a high com because it was the best way they could get a clean mat off of that model because it was it was a reflective surface. Right. And going with green or blue was just reflecting it was just reflecting too much and it was just tearing. Right. Because I think um, on that Actually, it was uh, John Dextra's group at Apogee were using the high contrast mats, and Doug Trumbull's group was using blue screen. <laughs> so they they would use it for different elements, like try and figure out what was best for which group to do, depending on which technology was going to work better. Yeah, and like the blue screen, it was just like there was so much blue spill, you know, reflected on that model that they just couldn't get a clean mat out of it. Yeah, you know, with us in the digital realm, you know, the trial and error is easy. You know, you just try. If it doesn't work, you you know, you find another compositing method. Oh, it's a lot back cheaper then, now, too. Yeah, it's a whole lot cheaper now. But back then, you had to you know, you had to shoot it, and then you had to print it. And what happens if the you know the the shooting was was just not going to work? You had to go back and reshoot that stuff. Yeah, and that was you know that was a couple of days of work right there. Yeah, they just they were braver. I just think they were far braver than we. <laughs> You head up the group called Percolate Digital. Correct. And we, what are you guys working on now? Uh, we are working on uh, several projects, one of which is already out. Uh, it's a space show called Unraveling the Cosmos. Oh, right. Uh, uh, yeah. I worked on that a little bit. Yes, yes. You might be familiar <laughs> with it. <laughs> um, and it actually was the first 4K stereo television show. Very nice. Yeah, we did portions of it in the cloud. We did all of it virtually with people in different cities, but everyone knew each other, so we all had a, a, a good line of communication going. But you know, there was it was something that had not been done before. It's a series of really long shots, taking advantage of the stereo aspect of HD because mm-hmm. the the series itself was created in stereo, and then the network 3Net decided to make that their first 4K show. Right. Uh, but the stereo version of the show was, you know, it was a bunch of artists, which in and of itself is not something so common. Our core group was was 12 people with three lead artists, one for each episode. And you know, it was a very, very small crew um, produced almost four full hours of CG um, in the course of a year. And, you know, this, that's, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of that accomplishment because there was a lot of people that were not quite sure that uh, we could pull that off. And there are times, I must be honest, sometimes you just can't play it safe. And this was one of those moments where I think we all just saw, you know, we, we have our shot. Let's take our shot. Yeah. And, you know, but back in the day, you know, creating, you know, things like, like Star Wars and Close Encounters and even further back to 2001, Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the stuff they made up as they went, um, you know, motion control cameras, uh, you know, you had the rudimentary forms of them in 2001. Then you had silent running, which, right. which you know, was kind of built out a little further in terms of repeatable camera moves. You know, there's a lot of tech that hadn't been done before that people said, you know, I think we can do it for this. And you test it and it works fine, of course, in tests. But then when you get into the reality of production, then you realize, <laughs> oh, well, now this is not quite going the way I thought it would. You know, the, even the great stories with gravity. Every day, they were doubting they could do it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I've heard, I've uh, heard and read interviews with both uh, George Clooney and Sandra Bullock, and Alphonse Cuarón, who you know, who was the filmmaker, who essentially said, "Yeah, we weren't quite sure we could do this." <laughs> and they, and I mean, he was being nice. I mean, Sandra Bullock was saying, "Yeah, they didn't think they could do it." 
And every day they would go in, not so much not thinking they could do it, but knowing that they had a really, really steep mountain to climb. And I think that any advancement in technology, whether, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, learning that green screen works better than blue screen and then committing to green screen for an entire film to doing all the stereo for gravity in post-production, you know, that film was shot. And with a single camera and all the stereo was created in post and yep. and the stereo is is just phenomenal I mean, oh it is i was i was totally surprised to find out that it was a post conversion because i mean they they planned for it to be that way from the very beginning and planned for you know the way that the things were shot and there's so much cgi in the film and that of course can be rendered out straight to stereo but it was just that is the one of the best stereo movies I'd ever seen, and it just totally floored me that it was a conversion. Yeah, it was. It was. I, I was startled to hear that too. I mean, the whole thing was that way. It was one of these things where we think we can do it, and even going back to Jurassic Park, you know, credit to ILM and and Dennis Muren and obviously Spielberg. You know, they were committing to Phil Tippett's puppets for Jurassic Park, and then you know Dennis Muren and his crew. Decided, you know something? I bet we could uh, we could render a photorealistic dinosaur in CG yeah, and yeah. make it work for this movie. Doing that test with the uh, running Gallimimus, yeah, herd yeah, yeah. and and then, you know, and then there's that great line where Spielberg turns to Phil Tippett and says, "Well, it looks like you're extinct," which then made it into <laughs> made it into the film. Yeah, and even even with the and the two two great examples of how things didn't work as planned, but some but then made it all better. Of course, the shark from Jaws, mm-hmm. when it, it simply did not work. The only the only times it did work were pretty much the, the scenes you see in the film. Right. But they were able to build that slow reveal of the shark, which you know became the benchmark for how to roll out a a terror narrative. You know, just let's show a little bit of the terror right. until at the very end we pay it off big. And that was simply because the shark didn't work. And then to a further degree in Jurassic Park with the dinosaurs, you know, mm-hmm. they, they built that full-size T-Rex. And what they didn't count on was that it was they were going to be shooting in rain. And that T-Rex is, was made out of foam. And, <laughs> and it um, got soaked with rain. And it got soaked with rain and was just, you know, it was like it had like the DTs and it was trembling. And, <laughs> and it was all they could do to get that T-Rex to work. And, you know, but I, I, remember, I remember the first time I saw Jurassic Park. And and I'd, I'd read about the fact that they had you know built this T Rex and all that sort of stuff, and I'm thinking back to like King Kong when they had when Willis O'Brien. No, no, no. The the '77 uh, John Gillerman King oh. Kong, where Dino De Laurentiis went and built that 40 foot Kong, mm. and it was a robot that didn't work, and it was it's <laughs> and, but they used it for all the promotional stuff. Like, look, they built a giant Kong, <laughs> and it's only in for like three seconds in the movie. Oh wow. Yeah, it just doesn't. I mean, thing. It looked terrible. It didn't move right, obviously, and just it was, it was, it was just horrible. When the first time we see the T Rex step over the wall when it's raining, yeah, I thought to myself, "Holy crap!" Spielberg and those guys got that that T Rex robot to walk, <laughs> and then I realized, "Oh my god, I'm looking at CG." That was the first time that it really hit me huh. just how good CG could be. And you see the water dripping down him, and he he is absolutely there he's absolutely there in the scene very cool that's what I, I think they had kind of a similar uh thing with alien 
where they, I mean, they put the guy in the suit, but they figured, well, you know, we really can't show him that much because it kind of looks like a guy in a suit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of, you know, get, taking that uh, Jaws's cue about like, oh, we'll just show a little snippet of him here and there and like try and put him in an awkward position and, you know, make him look interesting and and, and not uh, oh, hang on him too much. I hadn't heard that, but that makes total sense because that's a, that's one of those great slow reveals too. That's one of the great, gross movie monsters. That thing still freaks me out. You know, the, <laughs> the, the jawed tongue. That just, that's just a creepy idea. You know, people that come up with that, that stuff is just, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, worry, I worry sometimes that you know, people in this industry, if they weren't working in this industry, would be like serial killers or something. <laughs> well, we're actually going to be talking about Alien next with Matt Robotham. But thank you, Tom, for being on. My pleasure. Now on to Alien. I have uh, Matt Robotham with me. Hey. Matt uh, is a co-host of the Post-Atomic Horror. That is true. And uh, an Alien enthusiast. Oh, yeah. This was, I was thinking about this the other night, or uh, last night when I was watching this. It's like, when I was growing up, like, this was my trilogy rather than, like, Star Wars. Like, I, man, I love these movies. <laughs> they're, they're definitely some of my favorite uh, horror movies. Oh, yeah. And they're each, like, they're so different from one another. Like, you start with the first one, which is like a haunted house movie. Mm -hmm. And then you move on to the second one, which is like a thriller. I thought that was really great that they kind of kept bringing in new directors and new writers and kind of fresh blood as far as that goes to, like, you know, tell a different story every time. Oh, yeah. Well, like, that, that, that's one of the things that's so awesome about it. Like, each one of those is such a uniquely different story. But, yeah, uh, I, love, I love the diversity of it. Yeah. It's just that there's so much potential in that in that universe. Yeah, because like in a lot of other trilogies or quadrilogies or whatever they're yeah, calling it. We're just going to make up words for. Uh, <laughs> they usually get the, you know, it's it's always from the same perspective. But with these, they really took sort of the basic concept, which is this this thing and Ripley and just sort of everything else they can just go nuts with and they can explore this weird universe they've got. Speaking of that, um, mm. the, the movie starts out with a, a lot of that just kind of like setting in place the universe in which we exist here. It's there's just shots of empty corridors and you know, the, the ship kind of slowly waking up, but we don't even see any people for what, three or four minutes. No, it's like three or four minutes before the, uh, before we start the pods start popping open. And the, the ship itself, like, it doesn't look like something that people are supposed to live in. Like, <laughs> it's it's real, it's cramped, and, like, the corridors are all really kind of gross and oily. Mm. It doesn't look clean, and it doesn't look safe. <laughs> like, it really looks like you could cut yourself walking down a lot of those hallways. Oh, yeah. Coming at it from the, the perspective of trying to make it, you know, look, have that used future, which I guess... Oh, yeah. Um, you know, George Lucas said he was trying to go for a couple of years before it was Star Wars, mm -hmm. but it, it was an interesting thing that um, uh, Dan O'Bannon, who was the original writer and he had, you know, kept his fingers in the process throughout. Um, he said that they really wanted to do that even on 
Dark Star, which was a movie he worked on with John Carpenter uh, right. a few years before that. But it was like it was it was spaceship and there was an alien, but it was kind of a comedy and the alien was a beach ball and mm-hmm. <laughs> it was not really uh, sort of somewhat less threatening. Yes, yeah, not not quite as high production values, but they no. they did some inventive stuff with the miniatures and and the spaceships and stuff. Mm. There was some cool satire going on. Um, but they, they tried to do it even there, kind of that used future, but they found that like, you know, they actually kind of grimed things up on the set, but it didn't look that grimy on film. Mm. He thought that, uh, Star Wars also didn't read as grimy as he thought it should. And when he was talking with the, the director, Ridley Scott, he was like, really, I think you've got to like grime it up about three times worse than you actually want it to look. <laughs> In the finished film. And I, I think they maybe even went a little over that. The camera may add 10 pounds, but it cleans up your room by about 80%. Probably the problem. <laughs> exactly. So then we see the, the folks waking up. Um, yep. This is cool. Just like little burst of air when the door to the cryo chamber opens. It just, I don't know. It's like these tiny, tiny little details that I love mm-hmm. kind of in the, you know, as we're saying, the world building here. And you see, you're seeing all this stuff and none of it's explained to you, you know? Right. Totally. Like we just go right into the breakfast scene. And yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, they're they're all people who've worked together for ages, however long, and, mm. and they're just, you know, getting on with their day. And we don't yeah. get any explanation at all. It's just it's so uh, blue collar too. you know, like, yeah, you ju- it's just a bunch of guys having breakfast, smoking and like complaining and stuff. <laughs> uh, and they're on they're on a spaceship for crying out loud. And they're just going about their day. Well, the they all phrase, look kind of hungover. <laughs> the phrase "truckers in space" has been tossed about, and that's re- that's really good. I've never thought about that, but that's uh that's really accurate for sort of what they're doing up there. Yeah, they go through. They find out that they, they've been stopped because they got some sort of signal from the planets. Mm-hmm. So they got to go check it out, and they separate from the big refinery thing, which is this enormous model with these big cathedral-like spires and, and oh. stuff on it. This I love just, the look of the Nostromo so much. Yeah, just amazing model work on just it. This, just this huge, like, again, pointy, broken looking. But it's just, it's enormous. Like, it's got, they they do the, the, the over, the sort of, the Star Destroyer shot as, like, as the movie's opening, right? Mm-hmm. And it looked like the scale on it is just enormous. Oh, yeah. I, I had forgotten that before I watched it this past time. It's just like, it just keeps going and going and yeah. going past the camera. <laughs> Yeah. And I and I read, I think it was in the Cinefix article that they said the big model that they shot, you know, a lot of the close-ups with, it was mm-hmm. 40 feet long. Oh, my God, like, really? Holy cow. Oh, my God. Yeah, they spent a lot of detail on that and on, mm-hmm. on the Nostromo itself landing on the planet. Yeah. And they have this gigantic foot. Well, it's not gigantic. It's a model, but it <laughs> comes down and crushes these rocks. And oh. and uh, they go out in their spacesuits. That's it. That's another thing I love. The um, they've got these the 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 bulky spacesuits when they're getting out there. Yeah, everything looks so lived in, you know. Like it's no one's walking out and like uh, like you've got that sleek Spock uh spacesuit that he wears in Star Trek motion picture, right? Sure. These guys are wearing these bulky like things that look like they take forever to get in and out of. Yeah, it's it's interesting how many designers worked on this project too, because there's. Mm. Uh, Ron Cobb worked on the Nostromo design and the like, you know, the interiors and exterior and everything about right. the ship. And even designed these really cool little icons that you can, once you know about them, you just kind of see them popping up all over the ship. There's like actually icons that say, well, behind this door, there's 
no gravity and there's a vacuum <laughs> and you might not want to open it. <laughs> Jean Girard, is that how you pronounce his name? Mobius? I, is it Girard? Girard? I don't know. Um, he came in for only just like a couple of days and actually mm. designed most of the costumes or at least kind of the basis of what became the costume. But right. his, specifically his uh, spacesuits, those are his and they, they came almost directly from his drawings. Oh, I love those things. It's, they've almost got this like samurai armor look to them yeah a little bit and then of course there's hr giger mm-hmm. which i don't think it stands for hey really giger is that i just <laughs> <laughs> i possibly not in real life but uh i prefer f- too much to uh the uh the super ego podcast super ego podcast yeah but the- <laughs> you know, my initials stand for hey really giger <laughs> uh, i believe it's hans rudolf giger or yeah Rudy. i like mine better yeah i do too <laughs> and he designed uh the alien there, there was some collaboration on the the different stages of the alien but the mm. big alien was definitely all him now and he also did the alien ship interior right like yep, the the interior like the sort of the hive look and the uh the jo- the space jockey yep that whole thing the derelict ship itself uh the creepy vagina like portals that they have sure. to walk through to get into the ship and then there's like, you know, all these the walls that are look like they're made of ribs or bones mm. or something. And oh, God, one of my most favorite designs ever. And apparently he well, he, like he didn't want to leave his his studio in Switzerland at first. Right. He just like, OK, I'll, I'll you know, sketch off these designs and send them to London and they can do whatever they well, are going to do with them. He'd been working on Dune or something, wasn't it? And they never. Yeah, they never paid him. They never paid him. So he wasn't really into working on film again. Yeah. But he got kind of intrigued in it. And eventually, I guess, with some of the stuff that people were, you know, kind of taking liberties with his designs, like, mm. you know, I, I want this to come out the way I drew it. So he actually ended up, you know, moving out of the studios and and working on stuff directly, even to the point that he, once they built the set, like with all the ribs, mm-hmm. he, he like sculpted one and mm-hmm. then they, you know, made molds and, and cast a bunch of them wow. so they can make the repeating wall. But then to make it look exactly the way he wanted to have it look, he hand painted tons of that set with his airbrush and just like came in. Oh my God. I got to get the shading just right and everything like the space jockey and the, the whole set around it. Mm-hmm. Was he hand painted that? Oh, that's amazing! Yeah, that, that attention to detail and cr- and to the craft. I really think that's one of the things that like sort of endears me to this movie so much. Like that world is so yeah perfectly realized. Right. So they they get in there. Uh, they've got the space jockey, which is mm-hmm. this really creepy thing. Apparently, he built some of his uh, sculptures. He actually like started with real bones and then kind of built up <sighs> plasticine and stuff on top. Oh of my it. god! Really? I have yeah. never heard that before. <laughs> and they were saying that, uh, like, you know, he went to the the secretary on the set there and was like, you know, I need these bones. Order me lots of bones. <laughs> I'm doing my horrible hr giger you you person bring me the bones the human bones i am building and they they got some of them from like a local slaughterhouse and they were wow they weren't as dry as he was used to working with these he, <laughs> he said even for me terrible smell <laughs> <laughs> oh that's really creepy there was there was so much real animal parts that were used on this movie it's pretty crazy really yeah, I mean, uh, that, uh, you know, the bones, obviously, but like when the, the face hugger, when it finally comes off of Kane's face and they're mm-hmm. kind of like poking around at it to see what its innards are like, that's mm-hmm. like all, you know, like oysters and oh. mussels and stuff that 
Ridley Scott took a tweezers and kind of stacked them all in there. <laughs> so oh, they wow. look that's, gross. And <laughs> that's so cool. When the egg opens, there's Nottingham lace in there, which is like part of a cow's stomach. Oh my God. And uh, there was also sheep's intestines. Mm-hmm. That was part of the, well, like sprung out of the egg and hit well, him in the face. <laughs> that, um... That explains why the movie has that organic look to it. Yeah. Wow. Maybe they just had laxer laws in, in England at that point. This is uh, this is sanitary, right? What? <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. Go put your hand, go put your face in that cow's guts. <laughs> then they cut to the, the face hugger, which is an amazing design. Oh, God, that thing is so cool looking. Like, if you see Giger's early drawings of it, it's, it's much bigger than it ended up being. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like almost you know, half a man's height. and <laughs> But it's it did start out with those fingers and they kind of latched onto, no pun intended, that idea. <laughs> and, uh, and then it's also just got like a giant penis on one end, which is well, pretty it is disturbing. An organ of reproduction. That, this is extent. true. So, yeah. When I used to work at the comic store, we would uh, we'd get in gear art books oh, yeah. pretty regularly. And they would always like fly off the shelves like, that guy has such a unique art style, you know? Yeah. It's so creepy looking. I just love that design there. It's so functional. Mm-hmm. It's going to grab a hold of your face. It's got the organ it needs to deposit whatever, you know, alien baby in your stomach. I hope just like it's like a seed or something, if I recall. So Kane is, he's okay. They, mm-hmm. They've like, this thing has finally fallen off of him and they poke around in the oysters and stuff and yep. it's really gooey and gross. He seems to be fine. They lift off, which I love that shot of them lifting off because it's oh, got yeah. the, the amount of like, you know, dust and debris that's mm-hmm. flying around. It looks amazing, but there's these little tiny lights that are on the bottom of the Nostromo <laughs> in these rows and they're like none of them are quite straight they're all these little crooked lights and I just love that <laughs> bit of crookedness yeah <laughs> I'm sure the model builder is like damn it I couldn't get it perfectly straight it doesn't look real but it's I don't know I just kind of it, love that it just bit it adds character. to that broken crappiness to everything <laughs> in alien you know like this this ship is probably old as hell and falling apart and everything and the chestburster scene. One of the most famous scenes in uh, horror movie history. And apparently only John Hurt, who was the, the guy who was going to have the alien burst out of his chest. And mm-hmm. uh, I guess Tom Skerritt was also there while they were setting up. But none of the other crew members. I mean, they read the script. They knew what was going to happen. Right. But they didn't know exactly how <laughs> it yeah. was all going to work out. And they did uh, one take. They got this little air ram that was supposed to push the little chest burster up out of the shirt. And it mm-hmm. just, they used acid to make the shirt a little bit weaker, but it wasn't weak enough. <laughs> so it didn't, didn't quite get oh, so through. Oh, so like they're trying to force it through there? Yes. <laughs> so uh, they reset and, you know, scored the shirt with a razor blade so it would weaken it even more. Yeah. And, they finally brought everybody back in for another take and bam came up out of there and <laughs> there was some uh some tubes that they were like you know pushing some fake studio blood into the cavity in his chest and you know make it look super gross and mm-hmm. it just so happened that one of them was kind of sticking out in an odd angle and just completely smacked veronica cartwright right in the face <laughs> So she's like soaked in blood. It was kind of the force of it knocked her backwards and she says she fell on her ass and her cowboy boots were sticking up in the air. Is that is that take (laughs) still in the movie? In the bonus features on the Blu-ray, they have uh, that actual shot and it's like way more than (laughs) there is in the actual movie. So 
She was completely soaked. Oh my god, that's hilarious. <laughs> this gets evil deaded right in the face. But I think that was a cool technique by Ridley Scott, just kind of like try and hide it as much as possible from the actors. Mm. So they don't, you know, they kind of have an idea of what's going to happen, but they can well, yeah. actually have that element of surprise so they can give a better reaction in the film. You, you want to capture that, that, that look of terror when that thing comes out. Yeah. And it's such a horrible concept. The, this is the first time I was watching and I really sort of paid attention to uh, to Kane when it's coming out of him. And that dude is just writhing around on the table in agony. And he's still yeah. he's still alive when it comes out. Yeah. I can't think of anything as horrible as that. They switch to the other shot and, of course, it's a fake chest mm, in front of him. But right. it's his real head and hands. And mm. he's got his hands, you know, like twitching and just like, ah. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And I love the the look that the alien gives when it's sort of out. It's got this sort of weird calmness to it when it's finally born. And it's just sort of looking around, and then it does that creepy sort of, like, zip away where it, like, flies across the table. Oh, yeah. But, like, it looked, for, like, a weird little puppet, it looks really good. Oh, yeah. And apparently they put, like, a little compressed air cylinder hooked up to an air tube they hooked into the tail. Mm -hmm. So when they let that go, it's like the tail's just whipping all over the place. Oh, is that how that, that's so cool. Yeah. Okay, so then the alien's out there. Kane mm. is dead. They're kind of poking around in different spaces to see if they see this little thing. Right. Eventually, uh, uh, Brett, Harry Dean Stanton, walks off by himself, which you know is a bad the, idea. Gotta go find the friggin' cat. <laughs> the amount of people who get killed because of this cat, I swear <laughs> to God. You know, that's an interesting thread through that. <laughs> Yeah, they're they're looking for the cat, but and then he lets the cat run away. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, that's why they they got to go find it because well, they're going to mistake it for the alien or something. And yeah, there's there seems like there's so many scenes where somebody gets it and the cat is just kind of looking <laughs> like <laughs> enabling the alien. That cat, <laughs> you find out later that cat paid the alien off to, to bump <laughs> off the crew. Yes, good. This will teach you not to feed me fancy feast in a crystal bowl. (laughs) Well, now the alien isn't this tiny little thing anymore. It's this huge thing already, which is kind of amazing. But it it was interesting, a thing that uh, Ridley Scott brought up in the commentary that uh, kind of thought of it as maybe uh, it had a very short life cycle in which it had to, you know, procreate and and then die pretty quickly, almost insect-like, which is maybe why it was... You know, at the end of the film, when it's kind of curled up inside the the Narcissus, that, you know, it had just kind of like gone to find a quiet place to die at that Mm. point. There was a lot of thought that that went into the the life cycle of this creature. This is one of the things I used to be like when I was back when I was in high school, I was fascinated by like trying to figure out how this all worked. So then uh, Dallas goes crawling around in the air vents. And obviously that's a bad idea. But I, I love that in both of these encounters, we hardly see anything of the alien. No, it's, um, a, it's very Jaws-like in that sort of, you know, yeah. like you see as little of it as possible at the beginning. Right. I think and that was something they mentioned, too, in the editing that they like, as they went from rough cut and, you know, kind of did uh, further and further versions of the cut, there was less and less and less of the alien in each mm. version. Or it was, it was much more effective to just kind of, you know, let the audience imagine it and not oh, yeah. to show as much of it. You combine that sort of unseenness to what you can see, and what you can see of the alien is so, it's just so different from anything else, right? That, like, big, elongated head with the double teeth. Yeah. 
Like it does when uh, when it kills Brett for the first time. You get that close-up of the, uh, like, basically the steel teeth. And then later we get to see, you know, he opens his mouth and there's a tongue with another set of teeth. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it almost seems like an animal that's engineered for a certain purpose. Just yeah. To, to eat things and kill and... Uh. Okay, and so now that the captain is dead, um, yeah. Ripley should be next in line for command. And she, you know, goes to the computer and... And isn't allowed to know everything about the orders that are supposed to be going on. And she mm-hmm. eventually overrides it and figures out that uh, the science officer, Ash, is hiding something. The computer uh, mother. Yes. Which is this room that's basically full of computer. <laughs> There's so many lights. It's just, it's compu- it's all computer. Mm-hmm. And this tiny little, like, Commodore 64 monitor, which I love, I love computers in 80s movies or 70s movies in this case yeah where they've got that sort of like the blurry monitor screen it's the same thing as in the uh, as in the thing <laughs> so then we're back to ash about to give her what for mm-hmm. and the big guy um yafit koto uh parker parker thank you bashes him with i don't know fire extinguisher or something yeah. pretty heavy and his head just comes right off falls off <laughs> And, you know, which reveals that he's an android, mm-hmm. which I thought was pretty, pretty cool. That that was like the one thing that um, uh, Dan O'Bannon and Ron Chu said, said that, you know, that wasn't part of their original script. And these mm-hmm. other guys who there was this whole fight over writing credit on this film. Um, but the, these other guys, that was like the one main new idea that they contributed and I thought that was that was really cool. There was if you're the this huge company who's sending these guys out however many, you know, millions of miles and they have to be in cryosleep because it's so damn long mm-hmm. that you know, wouldn't you want to keep an eye on on your assets, this ginormous multi-billion dollar refinery in space? And, yeah. You know, well, if, the other- if these seven people who are running it, maybe, you know, one of them decides, well, I'm going to you know steal the ship and take it somewhere else well yeah i mean look at brett and parker these are not the most reliable employees you could possibly have (laughs) right one of the things i love is that reveal that he's an android just is so is so cool and the the interior of him is so like different than what you would expect from you know yeah there's no circuitry there's no circuitry it's it's just this weird milk stuff and these little it's almost like bubble wrap or something inside of him, you know? Yeah, there's like little little tubes connected to little glass balls. And yeah. Who knows what it does, but like it's, it, it looks I've fascinating. Seen, oh, yeah. I, I've seen this movie so many times. I wish I could go back and have watched it the first time before I knew all of the, like, all of the surprises in, in this. Because mm. I will tell you right now, if, not knowing that he's an android, I would have no idea what's going on. Mm. When he starts sweating milk, like, right before he's about to... Um, killer with the magazine yeah it's so weird i love that aspect of this where it's like it's it's almost so futuristic that we just we can't even we don't even have a frame of reference for what sort of technology he is and i think it works really well because it's i mean it's something that's pretty simple as far as the the design of it Mm -hmm. you're not trying to make it look like you know like data in star trek the next generation where it's full of circuits just pull off his head and there's a christmas tree in there yeah (laughs) no the um but i like like i like that that concept of i mean you know we since we find out the company's basically setting them up um like of course they're gonna want someone on the ship who's not going who the alien isn't going to want to attack or anything but yeah that is an interesting point though since he's not human and maybe not 
I don't know, maybe a little organic, but not in any way yeah. that the alien would want to eat him. But you know, well, he's see, the, just... the one who'll probably survive. And yeah, <laughs> you know, they can't really get back home now in yeah. the Nostromo. And uh, the alien comes and and grabs Yafet Koto and and Veronica Cartwright. Mm-hmm. Um, the actors they he didn't <laughs> not the characters he, he actually did, he... killed the actor <laughs> um but uh, it, come on, then, man, i'm just trying to get to work here <laughs> and then at that point uh ripley's like okay i'm the only one left i'm gonna take the cat and go which i don't know <laughs> why she wants to take the cat but i take that cat and, it, and i love the futuristic cat carrier Oh it's yeah, like, right. Like it's almost made to the same degree as the the you know spaceship models, where these little you know bits of they call them uh, like greebles, mm. you know, like little tiny bits of detail glued onto the outside, <laughs> so make it look futuristic. But I love uh, when she goes in to do the the self destruct of the Nostromo. I love all of this like crazy different mechanical stuff, pulling these levers and pulling up these little tubes. Oh and yeah, she's got a. It's like there's so much stuff that she has to do to do the self-destruct. And I, I love that. It should be hard. Like, in Star Trek, it's just a couple of voice commands. Yeah, computer, <laughs> blow up ship, blowing up ship in 10, 9. I, I love that it doesn't feel like a cheap effort. It's, it's like it's a self-destruct, but it's like she actually has to do something. Like she's like, what is it? Like she's putting, like she's leaking coolant or something. I They have some explanation. I can't remember what it is now. Yeah, they're essentially like overheating the main drives yeah. or something like that. But like she's physically pushing these things into these slots and it's so cool. Yeah. I like, just, again, attention to detail. That, that, that lived in, that lived in universe where everything works. Right. Everything's and, there for a reason. <laughs> and then there's uh like, like the smoke. That's there for a reason, right? Oh yeah, totally. So, and that and that room that dumps water for <laughs> that I haven't been able to figure out since I watched this movie the first time. Condensation. I don't know. <laughs> I it's apparently clean enough that Brett can just drink it. Yeah, that's that drove me crazy. Gross. <laughs> it's this room with like chains hanging from the ceiling, and he's just like, "Oh, this is really good." Hmm. Ah. Even the earlier scenes with two guys, uh, Brett and Parker, um, you know, working on the the stuff down in the lower decks. Oh, sure. And there's smoke everywhere. And, and you know, even even beyond what you would think of as like visible steam or smoke mm-hmm. or, you know, there was always smoke on that set. And it just make it a little bit thicker air, thicker atmosphere. So it just kind of looked a little creepier mm-hmm. and and more real in, in the case of like some of the models and stuff. Yeah. And it was something the actors complained about. There was like constant smoke all the time. And they're just like, they would go home just like covered in this burnt paraffin residue. Well, again, it's like that idea that this ship is not, it's not made for people to be on. Like, it feels like that's the reason that they get frozen. Like, in addition to just being these huge journeys they have to go on, Mm. like, this, it feels like the entire Nostromo is built for a very specific purpose, and that purpose is mining. And so little of that is given over to the people, like the the, the basically the skeleton crew that's that's supposed to be running it. Right. I mean, pretty much the only big space that they have is that area around the you know the the dining table. Yeah. Everything else is like they're in a little pod or they're crammed into this tiny seat in the bridge and. It's barely made for people. Yeah, for like a ship that big, there's no room for anything. But, you know, getting back to that smoke, yeah. it's like, I, I love that when she's she's set the self-destruct and there's she sees the the alien who is, you know, looking at the cat. They're having some sort of, you know, 
trading deal, I guess. <laughs> Gurney runs off and goes and get the flamethrower that Dallas was trying to use on it mm. earlier, which was like a real working flamethrower that they made for wow. this thing. And like apparently the director and the cinematographer almost got toasted on one of the shots when Dallas <laughs> came around the corner with his finger on the trigger. <laughs> and, but I just love the quality of light there at the end where it's just yeah. like it's, you know, the strobe lights and klaxons and the big, you know, lights uh, spinning around and the oh, flamethrower. Yeah. And it's oh, that combination there's, is there's that there's that shot when she turns the corner and it's just there. Right. Yeah. And just the way, like, the, the, the way it looks is just so cool. Just the way it kind of crouched down. It's mm. always in an odd position. Yeah. Well, I and mean, I've seen I've seen pictures of the guy in the suit, right? Yeah. And if you don't have that thing, like, in those weird sort of crouched positions, right. it looks really weird. Well, it looks like a guy in a suit. Yeah, exactly. Is the problem. <laughs> like, that, the alien should not have good posture. <laughs> I think, and it was like this guy who they found, he was just, he was like a graphic arts student in London at the time, but he was, he was Nigerian, this like guy who's like seven feet tall and thin as a rail Mm. and just amazing sort of the uh, serendipity that they just kind of stumbled across this guy. Yeah. Like she sees the alien and she runs, she basically turns around to go shut the the self-destruct off and she finishes up. She's like two seconds late. Yeah, and I love she. She's almost pleading with the computer, like <laughs> no! mother. I turn. I did it. I turned it off. <laughs> Self destruct in five minutes. Oh, you! <laughs> I just. I love that so. Much. It's like, oh come on, what else can go wrong today? <laughs> I do love that. Um, but then she does. She does make it into the narcissus to escape, yep. and they have the nuclear explosion looking that goes off. Which is, you know, it explodes like three times. Yep. <laughs> but it's, it's pretty amazing. This mm-hmm. like explosion in space is kind of, you know, just thinking on like what nuclear explosions look like underwater and stuff. It's, it's very much along those oh, lines. Oh, is that sort of what they went by? That's that's really cool. I They didn't say that anywhere, but I'm just kind of like thinking of this documentary called Trinity and Beyond, mm-hmm. the atomic bomb movie. And they have like tons of footage of like atomic tests and stuff. And Oh, that's I've never, I've never seen that. I've never seen an atomic bomb underwater. Yeah, pretty amazing footage that, in that. I I bet it would be. Yeah. The interesting thing here too in the, in the commentary, Ridley said that. Uh, yeah, Ridley, my close personal friend, Ridley. <laughs> you good said, friend, Ridley. <laughs> said that uh, that was like really the first time that people had really tried to like shake the camera a lot to make it look like there's some violent shaking going on in the ship or whatever. Oh, nice. I mean. We've seen bits of that before in Star Trek, but it's usually just kind of like move side to side. Yeah. And but it like actually kind of almost to the point where you're like hitting the camera, bang, 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 <laughs> to kind of get that, you know, very fast motion. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that his, that's him blowing smoke or, or if that's really, I mean, if that's <laughs> really true, the first time like, people if that's have done true, that. That's a huge influence on the way we shoot. Uh, like we shoot sci fi movies now. I mean. Right. Like the new Battlestar Galactica was basically built around that sort of feeling of the camera actually being in real life. Right, actually zooming in on yeah. stuff and not it's not kind of that stayed composition no, from the, the single position all the time. The idea that the like what's happening in the film is actually affecting the camera is a really cool concept. And another thing that Ridley Scott said, apparently when once she got in the narcissist and was gone, that was actually going to be the end of the movie. Mm. 
And it was it was uh, Ridley went to the producers and said, "No, we need to do like a little epilogue here, and you know, give me another four days to shoot this." Yeah, and, and that's you know when the she discovers that the alien is actually in the narcissus with her, and and she has to you know uh, get into the the spacesuit and kind of maneuver around and try very quietly to yeah <laughs> to get the door open to you know blow him out in space. And um, I love that when she, when she's doing that, she's uh, kind of humming this. Uh, I don't I don't know if it was like a real song. It sounds like she's saying "You're lucky" over and it's over. Like, again. You are my lucky star. That's it. That's it. It's like she's singing it to herself. Yeah. To kind of calm herself down. <laughs> I don't know if it was like a real song at mm, that point, or I, if it was just something that she made up on the set. But I I love that where she's like finally relaxing a little bit. Like you know, she it's goes. Been a, it's like, been a weird week. Let's just. Uh... <laughs> and it's like you know the finally discovering that the alien is in there with her still yeah. is just kind of like the point where it's like I'm gonna have a nervous breakdown. Yeah. Or you know I gotta sing to myself to just kind of like. I'm going to distract myself from the fact that there's an alien over there and I'm just going to concentrate on pushing these buttons over here and <laughs> to, you know, get him out of there. That, uh, the reveal of the, of the alien is also, it's so well done. I love the yeah. way the head blends in with those pipes that they have on the wall. Oh yeah. It just, it looks like that same kind of shiny black surface Yeah, all the way through. And then when it wakes up, like it does that thing where it sort of sticks its hand out, right? And you yeah. get that good look at look at the uh, the six fingered hand, which I love. I love just, that. Just that was, one more weird thing. Yeah, something that Dan Abandon, I guess, um, has suggested to Giger to kind of add that on there, mm-hmm. where it's like he's got you've got a second opposable thumb on the other side. Ooh. That's I mean that's just creepy in and of itself. Where it's like, man, this creature is like super useful. Yeah. <laughs> Can hold a pen with both sides of its hand. <laughs> the perfect writing machine. <laughs> and and she finally gets the buttons open to open the door out into space, so she can vent the air out and blow the alien. And you have to think, finally shoot him with a harpoon gun from mm-hmm. some James Bond movie <laughs> <I borrowed> <laughs> to actually push him out. I borrowed this from Batman. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I I love that the last shots are are um, when the the alien finally gets outside and you see the shots from outside of the ship yep. there's that uh you know full-size model of at least a good chunk of the ship mm-hmm. that it was hung from the ceiling so the engine ports are pointing down and they actually like sprayed water out of the engine ports and it's backlit with these like giant bright lights oh wow to make it look like i don't know some sort of plasma venting right. something i love that it was just kind of like such a simple combination that looks really really cool honestly. oh yeah also, I love that uh, they. She actually has to sort of get it into the engine because not even vacuum will kill it. <laughs> like you just can't beat this thing. No. Oh, we didn't even mention the uh, the acid blood. Oh my god! Of course we didn't. Oh, which is which is amazing. I and mean, that was something that uh, Ron Schusset apparently came up with because Dan Abandon was writing it. He was like, "I'm kind of stuck here because why don't they just stab this thing mm. or you know." <laughs> Or you know somehow kill it, and they they came up with that idea. It's like, well, what if it had acid for yeah. blood? And it's like, well, then you kind of can't kill it <laughs> in a in a normal way. They can't just crush it or stab it or something. I guess trying to hit it with uh, the flamethrower was what yeah. they came up with after that. But just the even seeing that where they kind of had the face hugger and they cut into it and the acid spurts out, 
and just eats a Starts hole in the eating floor. Eating away, eating through the hull. And they had uh, like a bit of flat styrofoam that they poured some. It was actually pretty corrosive fluid that they mm. put on it, with like a couple of different types of acid and some stuff mixed up together, and and it actually did you know eat through it. The the that scene when they like they've been chasing the the acid basically through the ship trying to stop it right. And oh, yeah. It sort of wears out on like the third, the third or the fourth deck down, right. and Dallas borrows Brett's pen and sticks it in there. Right. Sort of moves it around and it comes out all smoking. It, it, that looks so cool. Yeah, really sort of simple way of showing what that stuff does. Very very effective and gives them a reason yeah. for not being able to just kill it easily. Well, and I love uh, when they go to to remove it the first time and the uh, the tail tightens around Kane's neck. Mm-hmm. Like that shouldn't like it's. It, it's almost snake-like, and it like it's really cool. Oh yeah, and that was that was done so simply too. With mm. uh, like you know, they kind of vaselined it up and and stuck a piano wire on one end of the tail mm. and just just pulled on it to tighten it around his yeah. neck. But they the way they did it, it really looks like the alien is doing the tightening there. Yeah, it's, man, that's super creepy. Ugh. Well, thank you, Matt, for being yeah, of course. for a great discussion of Alien. Oh, one of my one of my favorite movies, one of the best horror flicks ever made. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. It's, there's just so much that uh, we wanted to cram in here, and I don't know even that we got all of it in with the uh, two-hour running time, but <laughs> perhaps we should split these up into smaller podcasts. I don't know. Do you have feedback? Send it to feedback at opticalpodcast.com or follow us on Twitter, opticalpodcast, or facebook.com slash opticalpodcast. See the show notes for this episode and daily posts of cool movie stuff at OpticalPodcast.com. Special thanks to our guests, Ron Algar-Watt, Matt Robotham, Darren Dochterman, and Tom Schmidt for being on the show. Couldn't have done it without you. Al and Matt can be found at PostAtomicHorror.com, and Tom Schmidt can be found at PercolateDigital.tv. Theme music for the optical and all of the interstitial music in this episode by Digital Drew that you can find at digitaldrew.com. Our awesome The Optical logo by the inimitable Mike Gower. And last but not least, special thanks to Cinefix Magazine for helping sponsor the podcast. If you've marveled over the effects in the hit film Gravity, like we did earlier, be sure to check out the current issue of Cinefix, now available at cinefix.com. The new issue features a cover story on gravity with 26 pages of in-depth, meticulously illustrated and researched coverage of the film's amazing journey to the big screen. It's also packed with details and exclusive imagery on the making of Ron Howard's thrilling Formula One racing biopic, Rush, Thor, The Dark World, and the remake of the classic horror film, Carrie. There's even more to wet your whistle in the enhanced iPad edition of Cinefix available on iTunes. Prepare to be wowed by even more photos and breakdowns of effects shots, plus exciting video content and interactivity. It's Cinefix on steroids. Visit Cinefix.com for more information on all three editions of Cinefix, print, online, and iPad. Thanks for listening. <laughs>